Episode 9 was really, really long, so let's keep this intro short. It's The Craft on this bonus episode of Scary Stuff. And welcome to this bonus episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast, where we're discussing the craft. I'm Eric Dellinger, and let's get the formalities out of the way. It is better that you should rush upon this blade than enter the recording with fear in your heart. Jacob Jim's Goldstein, how do you enter? <laughs> what am I supposed to say? <laughs> Whatever you want. The, the quote from the movie is, with perfect love and perfect uh, trust. Uh, with perfect love and perfect trust. It is better that you should rush upon this blade than enter this recording with fear in your heart. Nick Leamy, how do you enter? With perfect love and perfect trust. Yeah. Considering we're doing this via Zoom, I would have been really impressed with how you would have done the rush upon this blade bit. <laughs> I'm just my- impressed you pulled out a knife on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. It takes some balls to threaten a man by a knife over Zoom. <laughs> I mean, we, we've we've gone through this pandemic. Props and, whenever I can. Like a lot has happened with Zoom, but uh, I haven't had a knife pulled on me with it yet. So that was that was brand new. And I watched the host. <laughs> I try and do the props when I can. So I respect and it. Thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, it certainly sets the mood. I mean, I'm I'm ready to talk about some witchcraft. So. Who had seen this before? Me. I had seen it before, and it was a long time ago, and I had very few memories of it other than bugs. <laughs> that was a big takeaway, bugs and snakes? Yeah, I don't I don't like maggots, and I don't like spiders, and there's a lot of maggots, and there's a lot of spiders in this, and they're real, and that makes it yes. worse. <laughs> I, think, I think my biggest takeaway when I saw it was Feruza Bulk. Her performance really stood out for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was excited to do this. So we're doing this separately since this one actually came out before Scream, whereas what we did in episode nine came out after. But I missed this entirely. So this was entirely brand new to me. And oh, wow. it's a movie I was aware of when it came out, but I didn't really know too many people who saw it or were fans of it. But it certainly gathered a sizable following in the years since then. And certainly its reputation has grown. So I've been wanting to watch it for a long, long time. See, I, I remember when it came out, and I remember it being popular. In fact, when I was prepping for this, I watched the trailer a couple of times, and I have more distinct memories of the trailer than the film itself. It got played a lot. Mm. Yeah, and it was a pretty big deal movie. I mean, it, it did well at the box office, especially relative to what you would have expected for a rated R movie about teenage girls. Yeah, and the rated R element of it's interesting, too. I'm sure we'll get into that when we get into <laughs> yeah. the movie itself. But It's pretty funny. So, yeah, the budget on it was $15 million. Its box office was $55 million. 24 of that was domestic. So you nice. figure with marketing, depending on what the marketing budgets were at the time, but you figure it probably basically broke even domestic, and then the worldwide was all gravy. And that's a $1994, which today would be like a piece of avocado toast. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it came out, what was it? Was it 94, 95? 96. So this came out May 3rd of 96, and Scream was December 20th, 96. Yeah, I've mentioned before, some of my memories of the mid to late 90s are a little hazy, but I do remember this coming out. I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think I probably rented it at Blockbuster on videotape and watched it that way, which seems appropriate, honestly, for some of these movies. Like, this one just feels like you should watch it on a VCR. 
Yeah, the only person I had talked to about this movie was friend of the podcast, Anna, who, even before we decided on doing this as a bonus episode months ago, she messaged me to let me know that she had recently rewatched this, because I guess she had watched it back when it first came out. And her review of it basically consisted of, oh, my God, Robin Tunney's wig is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's basically all I knew going in was that Robin Tunney had a bad wig. Yeah, because she had just shaved it uh, prior for Empire Records like the month mm-hmm. before. Yeah, the director talked, Andrew Fleming talks about it a lot on the director's commentary. <laughs> uh, but he, he makes a, he makes a comment at one point about how she thought that was committing to the role and was proud of herself. And then she found out that wearing a wig every day was really committing to a role. Yep. In fact, one of the things he talks about a lot in this is how committed to the role the, the four central characters were and how much awful stuff they did to him, hanging him from wires and you know, scar makeup and all this and that. Okay. (laughs) I'm not really familiar with his work. Uh, I know he did Bad Dreams, which I know is supposedly very popular. I still need to see that. It's on my to-do list. And I know he did Threesome and Dick. Yes. (laughs) Which are probably the most popular ones he's done. But yeah, I'm not very familiar with his work, unfortunately. So Peter Filardi, the screenwriter, was pretty hot coming off of writing Flatliners. And he took a meeting with Douglas Wick, the producer, and they were spitballing ideas. One of the ideas the producer threw out was the idea of doing Teen Witches. And Peter Filardi said, well, I've already written a script about the rise and fall of a teen Satanist. So I'm actually already kind of dipping my toes into that water. So, yeah, let's do that. Peter Filardi wrote the first draft, sent it in. Studio liked it, but they had notes. They brought in Andrew Fleming to do a rewrite because he was pretty hot coming off of Threesome. And like you said, he was the perfect pick because A, he had done a horror movie in Bad Dreams, but he was also really hot coming off of Threesome as being the successful character drama. Right. He did a rewrite and then they said, well, we want someone to direct it as well. And he said, oh, okay, I'll do it. All right. You know, it's funny. I I do remember seeing Threesome in theaters. (laughs) I bet you I went with two of my buddies in college. Which was not a great choice. No. At all. Wait, so three of you went to go see Threesome? Yes. Me and, and two, two other buddies. guys. Yes. You, you really <laughs> did not, are just not a planner, are you? No. <laughs> no not at all. It's, in fact, one of them was the same dude I saw, later saw just he and I went to see Jerry Maguire. So we I really was about to bring up the Jerry Maguire screen. <laughs> should watch trailers more often than we did at the time, I guess. We, we went and I... You know, and I can't remember because a couple of the movie, other movies we saw, the three of us, we saw Time Cop and Quiz Show. <laughs> and I distinctly remember when we went to see Quiz Show, the one guy thought we were going to see Time Cop and was really disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Which I still think about a lot because Quiz Show is a great movie and Time Cop is, well, Time Cop. But we also kept going and saw Threesome together. And I feel like that was the last movie we saw together. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, reminds me of an awkward movie situation. At least I, as a trio. <laughs> <laughs> I once was asked to show someone, hey, hey, you like horror movies, show me a horror movie. And she was like, you know, basically a sister to me. And I was like, all right, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll introduce you some horror. Like, What's a good classic one? Oh, we'll, we'll do Hellraiser. And that was a mistake. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> you don't watch Hellraiser alone with another woman who's basically your sister. It just does not work. <laughs> it's a bad idea. I think you might win. Yeah, it 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 was rough (laughs) oh you know what no there was another movie the three of us saw together i think it was the one with the um the guys try to get his roommate to kill himself oh a dead man on campus 
Dead Man on Campus. Oh yeah, that movie is funnier than any right to be. <laughs> that was that was my exact impression. But I remember seeing it with those two guys and making "kick me in the junk" jokes for like three weeks after that because it was the first time we'd heard the phrase. All right, we're way off topic. We got to reel this back in. <laughs> so yeah, Memories, you know the crap. <laughs> all alone in the moonlight. <laughs> So The Craft came out in 1996 uh, from Columbia Pictures, who have also brought us other such movies as Venom, Robocop, and Gothica. (laughs) (laughs) All right, why'd that get giggles? That's not a bad list. That's not a bad list. It was the sequence. (laughs) It was like, we start recent with Venom, then we hop back to Robocop, and then hop to the middle for Gothica. (laughs) And so I I felt like Time Cop in following the chronology of you bouncing around in time. See, I just thought you'd be happy that I mentioned Robocop at all since like two or three times now it's been mentioned. Just like, why didn't Robocop's you say that one? Touchdown. Exactly. <laughs> Mainly for Orion Pictures, but yes, also. <laughs> we also, this was brought to us by Douglas Wick Production, which also did Gladiator, Girl Interrupted, and Working Girl. Okay, cool. And this movie actually had a witch consultant by the name of Pat Devon. Uh, they really went out of their way to try and make this as authentic as they could while being safe. I actually watched a video of the craft critiqued by two actual Wiccans. Hmm. And it was neat to hear it from their perspective and their comments on it. They're like, the god in the movie is mentioned as Manon. Mm -hmm. And they're like, this is totally made up and totally false. And as far as we're concerned, this was a great idea. This is a fantastic idea. Because the last thing you want to do is try to recreate a ritual using an actual deity's name because you're just gonna piss it the fuck off (laughs) (laughs) which we'll get into more later but (laughs) you know i actually have a quote from a oral history done on the huffington post about the craft and it's from filardi and it's about kind of the witchcraft and the element of that in it so i'm going to read that quote it's kind of long I did not use a witch consultant on the screenplay, but I did a lot of research, both reading and firsthand, into earth magic and the things we experienced when we are truly open to the forces of nature around us. I use Scott Cunningham's book, Earth Power, as one of my touchstones. It's an amazing text I still reference today. Goddesses and Every Woman by Jean Boleyn was another. Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth was my Bible. Holes Live Through This was spot on for me musically while writing the craft. It's the raw power of adolescent pain. I still think of the craft whenever I hear doll parts or softer softest. Apologies to Courtney Love. During the writing process, I had some interaction with Wiccans and their culture, but not much. My characters were sole practitioners. I believe that magic lives in each of us and is accessed in unique and personal ways. That's how life has worked out for me, and it's how magic manifests and grows for the four young women in the craft. Hmm. I'm fascinated how into magic everybody involved in this picture was. Yes. And it shows. Yeah. And Feruza Balk, I believe, was a practicing Wiccan at the time. Yeah, she even owned yeah. a shop. Yeah, after the movie, she she used some of the money she made from the movie to buy a shop. She kept it for about five years before selling it to the managers she had for the shop. Mm. And that's incredibly believable. <laughs> There's very little I would not believe about Feruza Balk if he told me. <laughs> I, I think at this point, like, she's an amazing actress. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've loved her in pretty much everything. And she's fantastic in this. But she seems like she would be a fun night on the town. What's neat is watching like the ritual parts of the movie. I have uh, some Wiccan friends and I've actually participated in a few rituals and spellcraft. And it's 
really well done and close to what a real Wiccan ritual looks like. Hmm. Sealing the circle, invoking the elements, you know, the use of the dagger and the cup. I've always been impressed by how well they did this movie for being as true to Wicca as they could. (laughs) Well, they had a consultant on the picture. Yeah, Pat Devon. Who I thought about reaching out for this and then never pulled the trigger on. Sorry, (laughs) listeners. It adds a layer of authenticity to everything that really makes it a more interesting movie than others that, I don't know, uh, Blair Witch, the second one, Black Book, whatever it was called. Book of Shadows. Book of Shadows. That's the only Blair Witch one I haven't seen. Like, I saw the first one and I saw the reboot, but I skipped the sequel. Oh, because you shouldn't have told me that. It looks bad. You shouldn't have told me that. Because wow, did you just that. sign your own warrant? <laughs> don't need to watch it. <laughs> oh, yes, we, we do. do. <laughs> Book of Shadows is the one movie I've seen. I went to see with a group of friends and my friend didn't make it through the opening credits. (laughs) He got up in the opening credits and sat in the lobby for the rest of the movie. You you heard it here first, (laughs) listeners. We're clearly doing a Blair Witch episode soon. I thought episode 13 was set in stone. I guess not. I guess now it's going to be Blair Witch. (laughs) Which is a shame because I don't really want to see that last one again. That was okay. It was just a different beast. (laughs) Anyway, we should probably actually get into the film. To get into the opening of the film, but one thing I'll mention real quick is this is another case where I read the script again. I was hoping I could get a hold of the script before Andrew Fleming did the rewrites. I didn't. So this is a draft of the script that was written November 11th, 1994. So presumably this is the draft right before they started shooting. I'll mention a couple bits and pieces as we go, and I'll mention some stuff at the end. There's not a ton to go over, but there are some noticeable differences. But the reason I'm mentioning it up front is this movie does have a pretty sizable cult following. And... If you're a big, big fan of the craft and you're curious about how it looked going into the making of it and what might have been different about it, then I would say look up this script and check it out because this script isn't hard to find. This draft of the script is present in a lot of places online. There are some interesting differences. So I wanted to mention that one up front. If anyone's curious about what could have been, this is an easy movie to check that out with. This this script's pretty readily available. (laughs) And part of the reason I think of that is the opening because the opening we get is a shit ton of candles, which is a recurring thing in this movie with shit ton of candles in many, many scenes. But we get shit ton of candles and we get a trio of characters, which would be Nancy Downs, played by Feruza Balk, Bonnie Harper, played by Nev Campbell, and Rochelle Zimmerman, played by Rachel True. Yeah, Nev Campbell, she went on to do Scream, I believe, after this. Yeah, she had a good 96. Absolutely. Whenever I think of Feruza Balk, I always think of a Return to Oz, honestly. Same. Same. <laughs> but she also really? did Island of Dr. Moreau. I always think of America History X. Fair. Fair point. Yeah, no. Return to Oz for me. But since you bring up Island of Dr. Moreau, if you're a fan of Feruza Balk, check out the documentary Lost Souls, which is all about the making of the Island of Dr. Moreau, which started as Richard Stanley's and ended up being done by John Frankenheimer. Nice. She's interviewed on it, and she tells a lot of fun stories. on The making of that movie is absolutely batshit. It's a phenomenal documentary. But listening to her try and coax marlon brando into giving a shit about the movie (laughs) is fascinating with her trying to do character stuff and him going no this is is just dumb so why worry he's just telling her oh you're young and beautiful you shouldn't worry so much that's funny i just saw a clip of christopher reeves talking about marlon brando really Uh, on superman yeah somebody on twitter retweeted it and i watched it because you know it's christopher reeves superman and he basically shits all over Marlon Brando because he <laughs> didn't give a shit. 
Wow. And this Did was, any of this... his lines written on the baby or something like that when he's holding oh the baby my up? God. Like, his dialogue yeah. was written on the costume. And he, he talks about it. Like, he's like, you know, do you think he was a mentor? And Chris Freeze like, no, because he didn't give a shit. Like, he could have cared. He could have been all that, but he didn't. And, you know, fine. That's fine for him. But, what, but this was like during the press tour for Superman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was on Carson or one of those shows. And it, I was just fascinated because, you know, Marlon Brando has always spoken of him, these reverential tones. And then the, the one interview I've seen talking about him specifically, other than, you know, Hearts of Darkness, he, he's just like, yeah, this guy didn't do anything. Brando is a piece of work. Even before all that stuff that came out recently about the making of Last Tango in Paris, which is awful. But even before that, I remember the stories of him working on the score, the Frank Oz movie where he refused to take direction from Frank Oz unless Frank Oz directed him in the Miss Piggy voice. So oh my he, God. He, he forced Frank Oz to do Miss Piggy when directing him for the entire duration of the film. It's He was a piece of work. Well, anyway. So the third of the trio would be Rachel True, uh, who I know very well from uh, Groove and Half-Baked. And just to bring us full circle to our previous episode, she was also in Dawson's Creek. <laughs> How was she? <laughs> She's my Dawson's Creek connection. I'm going to pull a Jake. I'm going to see if I can connect Dawson's Creek to like the rest of this year's episodes. <laughs> <laughs> that was real easy with last episode. I know. <laughs> Fish in the barrel. Yeah. So when I went back and watched the opening scene with them in it, it turns out that was shot after Principal shooting was finished yes like they went back and did that to make the opening credits more interesting it's probably good because the opening credits of this movie are terrible there's the opening with them doing a chant and it's the camera kind of closes in on them and feruza balk looks right into the camera and then it does this kind of rapid screen shot of you know occult witchy stuff really kind of rapid shot strobing lights before the credits come up all of those images are things from the movie yeah and on the shout factory blu-ray they take that clip of the rapid fire images and they use it as the transition between clips and all the interviews that are on the Blu-ray. Huh. So they use it the same way they use, like, you know, the thing in Super Friends with it. Meanwhile, and, and the thing from <laughs> they, it's, it's always their interstitial. And so it's really annoying because of all the flashing lights, but it's also kind of funny the way they employ it. And then it cuts to a shot of the sky, and we see the character played by Robin Tunney, who is Sarah Bailey, and we see her on a plane. So this is the original opening of the movie as it was written in the script which was fade up, aerial shot, several thousand feet above Los Angeles. The afternoon sun streaks through layers of smog and haze. Ethereal music. A word is handwritten across the screen. Strange. It dissolves away. Another word. Afraid. Another word. Magic. And then Sarah has a voiceover over all this, which is something strange is going to happen here. I can't tell if I'm afraid or not. Nervous. I wish I could snap my fingers like magic, and it would be a month from now. A year. And then it goes from there into the scene we see of them landing, getting in the taxi and driving away. So what we get in the film, the little bits of the airplane and stuff in her in flight are the remnants of this original opening. So the opening they went with in the finished film is certainly more intriguing. I just thought it was funny that it was stock footage of clouds. Yes. <laughs> like, how are you going to put stock footage in your opening credits? <laughs> it just seems so weird to me. I he mentioned it on the director's commentary on the DVD. And it's just one of those things like, oh, yeah, this was stock footage. I'm like, is that does that happen a lot? Just random Why stock footage bragging? in the opening credits? <laughs> <laughs> and then when she lands and she gets out of the terminal, there's that kind of funky building. And he said they shot that scene just because that's one of the few landmarks in L.A. that's distinctly L.A. And that's why they had mm. that scene. And that's why they have them getting into the cabs. Okay. I thought that was kind of cool. 
That scene also introduces us to another motif of this movie, which is a shit ton of rain. Yep. It's frequently raining buckets in several scenes of this film. And we get that from the opening as they hop a cab, which takes Sarah, her father and her stepmother to their new home. Along the way, she sees shrubs and image of a snake and mostly a shit ton of rain in the script. They pass like horrific imagery, like there's a street preacher shouting about the end of the world. There's a car accident when there's like it was this series of like all the horrific city imagery that would pop into your head. Like it's just this parade of misery that they see en route to the house. So what we're left with instead is rain and snake. You mentioned the rain, and it's one of those things that is also a consistent theme throughout the film is the elements being in the, the shots. Yes, there's always almost always greenery or earth. There's fire Wind. in a lot of scenes and, mm-hmm. and rain. So it's it's interesting how tuned into that they were. Like even in places where there weren't you know, a bunch of greenery, they added a bunch of plants just to have that element to it. And in the writing of it, they specifically identified each of the four with a specific element. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. Sarah was earth, Nancy was fire, Bonnie was wind, and Rochelle was water. Rochelle yep. probably being the most immediately obvious, considering all the swimming she does in the movie. But we'll yep. get yeah. to that. But then they get to this house. This is like their new home. This is what they have bought to move here from their previous home. And... It's nice. Like the house is like a two story impressive, but they go out of their way in ridiculous ways to make it look run down. Like it's got this like constant, like almost flow of water coming down through like the main foyer when they come in. Yes. I'm like, where's this leak coming from? Because it's a two story. Like if the second floor is that wet and flooded that you're leaking this constant stream of water to the first floor, this how did you buy this place? <laughs> well, it's interesting that the house does look run down, but it's on purpose. Yeah. Because he wanted to have a kind of an old L.A. feel and motif. And Don't get me wrong. Kind of, it's a distinct kind of architectural style to L.A. and that old Hollywood vibe. I guess there's not much of it there now like that's left. I'm fine if the place was run down. I'm fine if the place was dirty. The amount of water leaking in the very entry and the, when they walk in is it's a little awkward it's it's not feasible the the mainly was just the leaks that took me out of the moment i'm like what no (laughs) what what i also thought was kind of interesting is the outside it's a real house it's in the valley uh he didn't say which valley i'm not california enough to just say the valley and everybody know what i'm talking about uh i'm gonna try those just the one yeah it's in the valley maybe if dave lawson is listening to this he can tell us which valley they're talking about um (laughs) but the interiors are set but the set reproduces the interiors of the actual house, which just seems weird to me. Uh, you just can set up cameras better that way. Yeah, it's for mobility, yeah. And yeah, right. To destroy shit like they do. Yeah, well, yeah, no, yeah. no, I kind of get that too, but why just make it exactly like this house? You can just well, do whatever you then, want at that point. Because then you don't have assholes like us tearing it apart when they do it wrong with, you know, like Ouija Origin of Evil. That's why. <laughs> I didn't tear it apart. I just pointed out the chimneys. Count the chimneys. Chimney. <laughs> I feel like I'm in a Doctor Who episode. Count the shadows. <laughs> My main takeaway from... And it wasn't the, Origin uh, of Evil. It was Ouija, the first one that I had a problem with. Mike Flanagan uh, pays attention to details. Thank you, Mike. My, my apologies. Thank you, Mike. We love you. <laughs> Trying to dime me out to Mike. <laughs> <laughs> my main takeaway from the house was Sarah's room in particular. Aside from it, it was like, wow, she's got a bedroom with a full fucking fireplace. But then it was... Jesus, that's a certain kind of yellow and just the look of her room. And I thought it was just me until I did the rewatch of the movie with the script, which says the room is a hitherto unachieved shade of cadmium yellow. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's so intentional. Like, right. I like it. It was deliberate. Okay. <laughs> I love the house. I love the look. I that particular style is really yeah. very appealing. That was me. a great house. And I like the kind of rundownness of it. It felt lived in. And for a, finding out later that it was a set, I think they did a really good job in achieving the look and feel that they were going for. Agreed. Yeah, it's an interesting set. It's an interesting location. They even have door-to-door snake delivery. Yes. Uh, this is my least favorite part of the movie because it makes no friggin' sense. It makes sense. Neither of his appearances seem to lead or do anything. It's like, oh, you know, I, I, I brought you this snake, okay? Oh, you ran away. I'll run away to your letter and they get my head run over. It it, it makes okay. sense. It makes a certain kind of sense. So, yeah. So what <laughs> oh, I'm we're excited talking about for here, this, I, we're talking fact, about when I watch this. I said, I'm going to complain about this and Nick is going to offer an explanation. So this is a homeless gentleman who shows up with a snake and he wants to know if Sarah wants it. Like he's drawn to her and wants to give her the snake. And it seems kind of weird and out of place initially um, until he shows up again later on the street. Yeah. Yeah. I get the very strong impression that this is an individual who is suffering some some from some mental illness, but it's also kind of freed him enough to have like a connection to Manan, who we'll learn more about later. And this connection with the spirit is causing him to be drawn to Sarah because she is, as we'll learn later, a, a natural witch. So her power and his connection like, like like magnets. So he just senses her and he came walking in. It made sense to me, at least. I applaud you for filling in a lot of blanks. <laughs> And I'll say this. Oh, go ahead, Jake. Finish the thought. <laughs> nope. Everything um, else is just going to be mean. It, go ahead. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm talking about the script more early on than I expected, but it's appropriate in this case because what Nick said is pretty much accurate in terms of the script. Yes. In the script, the snake imagery is a lot more frequent and it's a lot more tied in with Manon. All the stuff we get in the movies there too, but there's some tie in with serpent imagery with Manon as well. And they mentioned specifically with this guy, Early on, after he gets chased out, they're like, oh, yeah, the neighbors know him. He's this kind of loopy guy around here, but he's he's harmless. You know, he never hurts anybody. The script does a little bit more to imply him being drawn to her. And when he first shows up, one of the recurring things in the script is when Sarah's magic kind of manifests unconsciously, she's suddenly backlit by light. And that happens when he approaches her with the snake. It's the first instance we get of it in the script, which is he shows up and is like, hey, do you want this? And all of a sudden, this light halo kind of surrounds her and the guy is taken aback by it. Okay. So good job, Nick. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, it's just none of what we just talked about is actually in the film. He didn't even talk about it on the director's commentary, which I was hoping for. Like, oh, he's going to explain the dude. Nope. He's just going to talk about fucking stones and shit. I get the impression they didn't, they were trying to like, just breeze through it quickly like they were like we got to get to these women together we don't want to spend too much time you know dwelling on outside forces this is really about the relationship between these four anything else is tertiary we'll give it a quick nod and move on and you're right they could have given it a bit more explanation or obviousness there but it's just something present within the film that makes it feel distinctly like you're missing a scene yeah and i'm with you on it i'm with jake on it being one of the the worst scenes in the movie. Um, <laughs> it's not my least favorite part of the movie. We'll get into my least favorite part later, but it does feel out of place. And it's, it's not helped by the fact that the guy seems to be dubbed poorly. So it's like this weird guy standing there with a snake with dialogue that seems kind of out of left field and doesn't seem to be his voice. So it's just feels kind of jarring the way it's stuck in there, but I, I will concur. I got it. And I think I understood it, but yes, it's definitely shoehorned in, you know, before we get too far from it, I wanted to mention, because it's still playing kind of in this scene or just ends right before this scene is the 
The opening credits song is, continues the great tradition of 90s bands covering older tunes because it's Tomorrow Never Knows, which is a Beatles song, and yep. it's covered by Our Lady Peace. Yep. It's not even the most famous cover in this, the movie. And nope. There's a lot of covers in this movie. <laughs> I, I just thought it was kind of odd that it's just so consistent with all these, and I, I wanted to mention it before we got too far away from it. Then finally, we uh, we cut to the first day of school. Sarah goes to Catholic school. I forget the name of the school, but I know it's a nod to, I believe, the writer's uh, high school. Oh, gosh, I forgot to write it down. It very well might be. I know there are specific instances. I know it is. I, it might, the I don't know if it's from Filardi or Fleming. I know there are specific instances from Andrew Fleming's mm-hmm. high school life that he put into the movie, uh, specifically the character of Bonnie, the character played by Nev Campbell, who we're about to meet, where one of her major character elements is that she has these significant burns on her back that kind of run up her shoulder and whatnot, which she's incredibly self-conscious about. That element was tied specifically to a girl Andrew Fleming knew in high school. He knew a girl who had those burns. Oh, wow. Pretty much just like that. So that was something from his life. And the suicide element with Sarah having attempted suicide before the onset of the film is something we find out later on that was also tied to the same girl that Andrew Fleming knew. So, so yeah, we start off in the school and this is where we actually meet the trio officially with Bonnie played by Nev Campbell, Fruzabalk playing Nancy, Rochelle played by Rachel True. And as we're walking down, we see Breckenmeyer. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got to love my heart for Breckenmeyer. I can't even exactly tell you why, but I do. Got Breckenmeyer playing Mitt. I think this very is his first film. Role. Yeah, making uh, satanic jokes as they walk down the hallway. He's got, for my money, coming up the most awkward joke in the film. In this opening or in one of the next bits? It's when they sit down in class. It's when they, they're... Uh, oh, the French scene. Yeah. yeah. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah, we'll get- <laughs> it's funny. They introduce them and they're supposed to look kind of frumpy. One of the themes in this is that their clothing and their hair shift along with their power and their stature and their abilities. So they're introduced like Nev Campbell's wearing this windbreaker and it's all it looks like it's three sizes too big to that end something you'll appreciate i spent a lot of the last chunk of this movie going oh i like that outfit oh i like that outfit like rochelle's got this nifty coat at the end in the final scene bonnie's wearing like this tim burtony striped (laughs) shirt that goes like way past her hands like the cuffs on it are enormous and i was like oh the costumes are fascinating let me look up the costume designer the costume designer is deborah everton who worked with andrew fleming on bad dreams and threesome and she also worked on first contact and the abyss and highlander 2 she was the costume designer for those but she was the costume designer on the pilot for the X-Files. Oh, so, hi. There's our X-Files connection. We just got done talking a bunch of X-Files in the previous episode, talking disturbing behavior. So it was like, hey. I've actually, I've got a quote from her about the costume. Oh, perfect. About, from Deborah Everton. This is from that same oral history in Huffington Post. The first day of shooting was the first day the girls met each other, and Robin didn't even have a school uniform yet. The studio flipped out and thought I was the worst costume designer and thought I was going to ruin the movie with how blah the girls looked. They all came down in a pack to my office. I was terrified. And for some reason, the studio executives always travel in packs. It's the funniest thing. They really thought I had lost the plot, but fortunately they didn't fire and let me show you them what I had planned and they calmed down and we got the film made. Huh. So I like that. And it really, it's noticeable. Like you don't, the first viewing, I didn't think about it, but after watching it and then thinking more about their transformation, it really is noticeable by the end how sort of elaborate and fancy and cool their costumes are versus at the beginning where they're wearing you know windbreaker three times too big well it comes a lot i think with the the confidence of it all like as they achieve this kind of 
inner either power or strength or achieve the goals they've wanted, they feel more sure of themselves and invigorated. And that shows in their choices, including clothing. Hmm. And then they're all gathering at the locker. Yeah, talking about how they need a fourth. And it's Furza Balk's Nancy's locker. And she pulls a noose out of it and is like yes. leaning on this black noose. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's an unusual thing to have in your locker in the 90s with the suicide panic and all that. And then they walk away with the locker still open and the noose hanging out. Wide open. <laughs> Drives me nuts. Don't even look back. <laughs> Notice that too. As much as they get picked on, it's like, oh, I'm probably going to trash it anyway, so I'm just going to leave it unlocked. That way, at least I don't have to replace the lock when they break it. <laughs> you know, I, I don't really enjoy pointing out like goofs and whatnot, but it's one of those. It's like, uh, uh, and it, it literally gave me anxiety back to high school <laughs> having been paranoid about yep. my never, locker being locked because i never leave that school. locker open yeah when i was a freshman my brother was a junior so like a lot of my life was getting shoved into lockers so i got real paranoid about people going into mine so when, <laughs> the, when they walk away and it's open i'm like no please go back <laughs> i didn't realize that was a trigger for me at you know my advanced age but apparently it still is I got major high school flashbacks from the next sequence, which is after we see them in the hallway, we get to Bonnie specifically in French class. Yep. And Bonnie alongside the character we just mentioned of Mitt, who's played by Breck and Meyer, but also Chris Hooker, played by Skeet Ulrich, another soon-to-be Scream alum. And this is where Sarah Bailey is introduced to Bonnie. So Robin Tunney's character enters, and this is her first day of school, and they're in this French class. And I was very proud to see that much like the school I went to, the French rule of you can say anything you want so long as it's in French holds true yep. <laughs> <laughs> between this, the conversation that this teacher has with Breckenmeyer's character of Mitt, which is startlingly brazen. <laughs> well, this is where that awkward joke is, because he refers to Robin Tunney as a snail trail. And I'm not going to yes. explain what that means. You can go look it up on Urban Dictionary yourself. But it was one of those I'm like. That was really out of the blue and, frankly, what the hell? Yes. And the response to it, because it's French class, is essentially, ah, ah, en français. (laughs) (laughs) Because the frankness of this French teacher, when when Mitt is saying, like, oh, yeah, I got laid, and he's, ah, ah, en français. I was like, man, the tradition continues of, it could be as (laughs) awful as you want, so long as you say it in French. To the point where later, when another character is circulating rumors about Sarah being the worst sex partner that this character has ever had and it disseminating through the school i really wanted her to walk into french class and to have the teacher pop up oh bonjour mademoiselle belly j'ai entendu dire que vous étiez mauvais au sex <laughs> i'm a laugh but i don't speak any french so that was probably funny puis je vous suggérerai de l'utiliser davantage vos haches la prochaine fois I wish I knew what that meant. (laughs) So yeah, let's see who at home can pick out what that says. One of the things from this scene that really got to me is Skeet Ulrich. And the fact that he looks 10 years younger in this than he did in Scream. Yes. It came out the same year. Or the year after. Whatever the hell Scream came out. It was startling to me. How much younger he looked than in a movie that came out at the same damn time. Which brings up something I was curious about. So I guess Skeet Ulrich was seen as a bit of a catch at this point. Because I saw him first with Scream, I just associated him with, you know, creepy. And 
he's and that carries over here so much because he's just <laughs> unnerving from go and him looking younger he's even more unnerving and more wild-eyed it was like every time he's on screen yeah I, I remember him being kind of one of those tiger beat guys that was really really popular with teens at the time like him glamored later in the movie is not that different from him pre-glamour it was like yeah i mean look i like skid ulrich i think he's great and I, i've talked about my love of riverdale and my shame of my love of Riverdale, but he's fun in that. So, you know, I'm glad he's still got a career, but yeah, he was supposed to be the next big thing. And then he kind of was not. Mm. So the French class bringing it back in is a uh, very important, the scene, because this is where Bonnie first sees Sarah's example of power because Sarah's just kind of like zoning out as she's balanced her pencil tip on her desk. And now it's slowly rotating in place. And Bonnie's like, Oh Yeah. You're the fourth we need. Absent-mindedly destroying school property. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness this new girl decided a public space is the best place to practice her burgeoning telekinesis. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, and then she excitedly conveys to the other members of the group, holy shit, I think I found our fourth. But in the meantime, before they can catch up with her, well, I guess as they're trying to catch up with her, as they're creepily watching her from afar, Sarah is speaking with the aforementioned Skeet Ulrich character of Chris Hooker, who is instantly hitting on her on their lunch break and then comments on, you know, I think these other three girls are watching me as they turn and they are quite clearly staring (laughs) without trying to be subtle about it. And at which point the Chris Hooker character speaks very poorly of them and says, oh yeah, they're weirdos. They're creeps. Stay away from them. He says specifically the witches. witches. Yes. So he was right. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't all slander. No. And then he invites her to uh, watch him play uh, football and practice. How exciting does that sound? That sounds awful. Her watching him play football, I just kind of watched it. And then the first time around, because then the other three girls show up and they start having this dialogue exchange. The second time watching it, when it got to the sequence, my ears pricked up a little bit. When I started listening, I said, is that that the theme for Charmed? (laughs) It is. It's Love Spit Love's cover of How Soon Is Now from the Smiths. Yeah, I completely missed it the first time around. And then the second time I was like, wait a minute. I, I did mm-hmm. not miss it. But I didn't know it was the theme song to Charmed until yep. I, I looked it up. But what's funny about that is on the commentary, Andrew Fleming also makes a comment about that. In that this very scene, he's like, when Aaron Spelling decided to make a TV show about three witches, he used it as the theme song. Got to give the man credit for originality. <laughs> <laughs> nice little dig there. Which made the entire commentary worth it. because. The tone of voice he says it in is great. Here's why it took me a minute is because I have never heard the theme song to Charmed. I have read the theme song to Charmed because Charmed was always on TNT from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. when I would go to the gym and I was Ah. on the elliptical warming up and I didn't want to put headphones on because I was only doing a five minute warm up. So I would only turn on subtitles and I would always get the end of Law and Order and then I would get the beginning of Charmed, depending on how soon I got on the elliptical. That's so hilarious. I have seen the lyrics, closed caption <laughs> for Charmed, many times. I have never heard the song put behind it. That's great. Wow. I was just fascinated that it all being a Smiths cover. Because, again, I had never seen Charmed. I didn't know it was the theme song for that until after this. I didn't know that this was going to be in this. And, like, I like Love Spit Love fine but i love the smith's version and i don't know why you wouldn't just use the smith's version but so it goes it's a good cover in his interview on the screen factory blu-ray of this i believe it's andrew fleming is talking about meeting with the studio 
and discussing that he wants the visual aesthetic for the girls to be vaguely reminiscent of The Cure. And the producers and the studio heads basically went, oh, yeah, yeah. Now, who's that? <laughs> so, so it could be Ouch. that was why it was get a new band it was like now who are the smiths oh man that's funny but in this scene the trio of girls who were in this little coven or you know sort of coven introduce themselves to sarah they're coaxing her away from watching skeet alberts play football they said you know go shopping with us nancy says specifically he spreads disease i speak from personal experience he's a jerk and said, come with us. We're going to go shopping somewhere where we get a five finger discount. But first um, they yell at him and he trips. Yes. <laughs> Which is funny because apparently it's Skeet Ulrich doing his own stunt. Apparently he's a great faller and that's one of his many talents. And, and ah. Fleming went on about this on the commentary. So it was one of those like. Sure. Which is funny because later on there's a sequence where he's moving quickly getting out of a vehicle and it is decidedly Skeet Ulrich's stunt double. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, that is not him. So they're en route to this shop. This is where we establish Nancy's wrist scars, and she establishes she had a previous suicide attempt. We don't get any details about it, but he acknowledges the scars, and then they kind of move on and I, enter. I find it funny that Robin Tunney went from one movie where she was a suicide attempt to another movie where she was a suicide attempt. The only difference being the direction of the cut she made. Oh, was that in Empire Records? I can't yeah. remember. It's in Empire Records, yep. uh, one of her confessions is that she recently attempted suicide. It's been too long since I've seen it. Empire Records is why she's wearing a wig during this entire film. And then they enter the shop that's owned by the character of Lirio. And they don't say the name of the shop, but I'm assuming it's Candles, 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 based on the (laughs) (laughs) Which is what the girls are partly there to pick up. So this is apparently the girls' favorite store to rob and employ their (laughs) five-finger discount using the justification of everything in nature steals. Quick script tangent in the script. They go to the mall first, and every time they go to steal from a place, they have a motif. And Bonnie says... Today's motif is red. We're only going to steal things that are red. And so they go to a place. Bonnie and Sarah have some dialogue and sees them stealing red scarves. And the salesman goes to confront them. And Sarah, again, kind of unwittingly glamours this person, just kind of like she does the snake man in the beginning of the script. And then they kind of head out of there real quick. And then they go into Lirio's shop. Hmm. Bonnie is encouraging Sarah to stash a book away. And Sarah's grabbed some candles. And Sarah is quite intrigued by this little curtained off area at the back of the store wondering what is back there presumably the adult video section we're not entirely sure because (laughs) before she can get through the curtains and see what's back there the store owner lirio grabs her wrist and says no 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 that's not for you you're gonna pay for that shit you're holding and sarah says yes and oh you're not like your friends which i thought was interesting (laughs) she says yeah i'm gonna pay for these oh really and it's a book called the craft at which point they start discussing candle magic once again, pushing the candle angle in this store. They're overstocked. They need to get this shit moving. No, so. what you want is a candle. <laughs> <laughs> Even though she goes, maybe you're a natural witch and your power comes from within. That may be true, but still, you need these candles. <laughs> candles. Very candles. popular choice. Candles, motherfucker. <laughs> candles. <laughs> yeah. And Sarah has this pleasant exchange with Lirio, the shop owner, about, you know, like Nick mentioned, you being a natural witch. Presumably the other three are just robbing the place blind during this entire sequence. They leave and they cut to the city street at nighttime, which is bustling with people. We should and- mention that Lirio is played by Assumpta Serna, who is a hugely famous actress uh, pretty much everywhere but the U.S. Oh, mm. She's Spanish, but she's won all kinds of awards, like Beck Actress Awards in like Argentina and Chile and Uruguay and just all over the place. So she was probably 
the most world famous actress in this film at the time. She did a good job. Yeah, she's fun in a very small part, but she she does a good job in her very little screen time. Yeah. In the following sequence, we get the return of the Snake Man. We also get a street preacher who is sadly not played by Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> uh, for anyone who likes Johnny Mnemonic. And Snake Man tells Sarah, I know you. I've got a snake to give to you. And starts chasing her down. Street preachers shouting at her, you know, come child, come back to Jesus. The girls go running from creepy snake dude. He runs into the street. And then a convergence of events, which is implied to be magically engineered. The snake guy has rather graphically run over by a taxi cab, goes right under the wheels of it. And girls flee from the scene of that, head over, camp out by a tree. And Sarah is a little bit horrified, but the other three girls are excited because, holy shit, that was us. We did that. That happened because of the four of us, which means now that there's four of us, we can really do some shit. And holy shit, maybe he'll really listen now. Yep. And then we get Sarah inquiring, who who are you talking about? And they clarify Manon, who is the sort of deity that these girls worship. They say uh, Manon is the god, the devil, everything. That if there was a stadium for God and the devil to battle it out, Manon would be the stadium. That Noman is 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 all of existence. So it, it's it's beyond simpler things like darkness and light. It's it's the everything. Now here's something I thought was interesting. So not knowing a lot about witchcraft and Wicca, but what you see kind of in popular culture is it always referred to in feminine terms, where everything kind of has a you know very feminine angle to it. Whereas the character of Manon in the movie is referred to as being male and specifically uses the pronoun of he specifically when Nancy brings it up, which is further ironic because it's a French female name. Yes. So I was curious about that. I was like, that's interesting using a male pronoun for it. And going back to the script real quick in the script, that seems slightly longer where Nancy uses the pronoun of he for Menel. Bonnie uses the pronoun of she for Menel. And Rochelle says specifically, I think it's more of a transgender thing. So the gender question for the deity is left more vague in the original script, which I thought nice. was interesting that it's not hmm. specifically Very nice. male. So I kind of wish they had left that in. Yeah. The other bit, well, apparently I wish... that scene was longer that they filmed. They just cut around it to keep things moving. Yeah. There's other bits and pieces of exposition in there, but that was the, the main bit. I wish they had retained from that. The bit that wasn't in the script, which I wanted to be in the script, which is where Sarah is getting the name of the deity, which she says, who, who are you talking about? And they said, Manon, what's that? I, I couldn't make it out. Manon, one, one more time. Manon, Manon, do, 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 do. <laughs> Manon, Manon, do, 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 do. Manon, Manon, do, 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 do. Manon, 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 Manon. Well, that would have been perfect. That was that was well done. Kind of takes away from the invocation scene later in the movie. If it's them around the fire, and then, do, 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 I invoke thee, do, 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 do. Oh, dear God. <laughs> so, <laughs> to bring it back in, this is also the scene where they start discussing the fact that Sarah appears to be a natural witch. And mm. they ask, you know, has anything like this happened to you before? And she was like, like this? No. But you know, there's been times where she'd wanted to rain and a pipe would burst. Or that she would want things to be quiet and she would go deaf for a few days. You know, the, the idea being that she had seemed to be able to affect the world around her, but was very unfocused. Just the first time a focused energy effect occurred. 
yeah, she gives the exposition about these weird incidents, which point to her being a natural witch. The other girls continue to try and give her the sales pitch. Sarah says, sorry, I can't hear anymore. I got a date with a creeper. And <laughs> go, goes to the rooftop of a hotel to meet Chris. Where they talk about head size. Because he yeah. makes fun of the trio's head size, yeah. It's just a weird flirting technique in my book. <laughs> it's it's a strange dialogue exchange. I took it as a, a used line. He's used it before. Because it's like, make fun of someone's head, comment your head, talk about kissing your head, come in for the kiss. Like, it's clearly weird in a sense that I think teenagers are supposed to be portrayed at some level as being stupid. <laughs> you know, nobody in high school really has, most people in high school don't have game. So it's... He had this used line he's used before. It's worked. I don't know before, what you're talking but... about. I, yeah, I can't even. <laughs> I had the opposite of game in high school. <laughs> but this is something that it felt very scripted, not in the they did a bad job with the script so much as he did a bad job with the way he approaches women. Oh, yeah. I didn't think it was awkward in the script. It's just the no. kind of funny, goofy shit. It was like head size. And I can say from experience that if you ever comment on the shape of somebody's head to some other people, they will never let you live that down. Just saying from experience. <laughs> Good to know. My head is massive. You may talk about it as you see fit. <laughs> I, you know, I, I knew my head was big. And now that I, I realize that like every time I, every other mask I buy won't stay on my ears. <laughs> I got to get big ass mask. Like how fat is my damn head? I need Jesus, an extra, extra like large hat. Goddamn pumpkin walking around here. <laughs> Mostly stone up in this noggin. But anyway. <laughs> so anyway there, that's my psa don't mention head shape around certain people because they will never let you forget it <laughs> nice mask does it double as a hammock with that big ass head you got <laughs> <laughs> and the head approach doesn't work that great for chris it lands him a kiss but sarah's not willing to go further than that and good for her because chris is creepy as fuck as we established and, and Breck says, and Meyer is like three feet the other direction. They just left. <laughs> you don't see them, but they, they just left. So Sarah says, yo, that's as far as I'm willing to go. Chris says, all right. And he says, you know, you're not mad, are you? And he says, oh, no, no. And then instantly slanders her the next morning at school. Yeah, he starts telling everyone that they did sleep together and that she was the lousiest lay he's ever had. And she finds this out by the trio who are just like, yeah, you should know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then she goes and confronts them. Yeah. She goes right up to him and is like, hey, what the hell? I thought we had a nice time. And then he immediately starts treating her like a clean stalker. And it's just, it's very uncomfortable. I'm just like, oh, God, this guy's fucking awful. It's also got the movie's one instance of the word fuck. Yep. She goes, yes. fuck you. He's he goes, walking Mah. away. She says, fuck you. And that's on purpose, actually. Because they wanted to get this as a PG-13 film. And in order to be PG-13, you can only have one non-sexual fuck. Yep. Instance of the word, not, you know. Right. <laughs> no dry humping. Got it. <laughs> and, and what's funny is they ended up having absolutely no chance at this being PG-13 because it shows teenagers in witchcraft. Yep. I have a, another quote from that same interview. This is from Andrew Fleming. That was kind of a snafu. We were trying to make a PG-13 movie, so we weren't using the F word or having any nudity. Then, right before shooting, the NPAA notified us because I guess we'd sent the script to them that no matter what we did, the movie would be an R rating. They said it was black magic and teenagers. And I said, hold on. Paganism and Wicca and witchcraft are not black magic. Black magic is devil worship. We had made that distinction very clear and early that it's not about devil worship. They wouldn't budge, so it was frustrating. If I had to guess, they wouldn't do that now. 
I've never had any luck with the MPAA. They don't like me. We had a huge fight over threesome. There was nothing we could do about the craft. <laughs> wow. And all I can think is, did he try and make threesome PG-13? Because <laughs> the ending makes that difficult. I mean, there's not a ton of like nudity or anything in it, but it's just sex, sex, sex. <laughs> that movie is about what you think it's about. I mean, there's more to it, but it's anyway. I, I was fascinated by that, that they tried very hard to make this PG-13 and then realized after shooting it that nope, no chance. I think it's particularly ridiculous, too, because when I finished watching it, I said, oh, that was I assumed it was PG-13. I didn't notice until going yeah. through the extra material that it was an R. And obviously the MPAA does a lot of ridiculous standards. With oh, stuff, yeah. But I thought for that in particular with the craft of nope, it's witchcraft. So it, it's going to be an R no matter what. And in reading the script, there's a little bit more violence in the script, but there's they say fuck pretty frequently in it. So they went through a lot of stuff of, you know, tweaking dialogue and, and getting all this stuff so they can get it down to a PG-13. And it, when you watch it, it's there's no reason it shouldn't be. So I was stunned when I found that out. The MPAA is so odd. I've heard of people sending shit to them going, oh, no, this is too much. It's X-rated. And they go, OK, we're going to shave half a second here and half a second there. OK, you're good. They're like, what the hell? You know, they don't even take out whole scenes. They just literally like shorten them and, and it makes all the difference. It's. It's completely arbitrary and frustrating. It's interesting yeah, yeah. how often it has come up on like just the movies we've talked about on this podcast, you know, and trying to get better ratings or lower ratings and having to shave this and that. And it's just it's interesting. And so, like you said, arbitrary. It's it's just dumb. I don't know who they're protecting from this particular movie. No one. No one. <laughs> OK, so real quick, it's shoehorned in and it probably isn't actually good for the flow of it all but i love breckenmeyer so i'm going to mention it <laughs> so, then Mick, <laughs> so then of course you know sarah's confronted chris unsuccessfully and mitt's just like then she's gonna cry and then i'm gonna cry and then we're all gonna cry and of course breckenmeyer doing breckenmeyer and i love the man <laughs> <laughs> it's funny a couple of times in the director's commentary fleming mentions breckenmeyer said oh he made up that joke I didn't get it, but it was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and he says it like three times. Uh, I could see that being Breckenmeyer. Yeah. And I, I just like that he left the jokes. I'm like, I didn't understand it, but I left it in because I thought it was funny. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. From there, we transition into Rochelle's high school nightmare being the character played by Christine Taylor, who's playing Laura Lizzie. Christine Taylor, you may have seen in Dodgeball, Zoolander, or... Night of the Demons 2. No shit. Yep. I didn't a go that far back. Oh, that's absolutely. awesome. Wasn't <laughs> she also Marsha Brady yeah, I just, Brady yeah, Bunch Marcia. Yeah, but everyone knows that. That's yes, important. Brady Bunch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> I didn't realize that was her signature film. Uh, I guarantee almost everybody thinks of that when they think of her. Yeah, I thought Marsha. I said, hey, is that Marsha Brady? I only knew it because, uh, again, the director's commentary, he mentions it. says, you know her as Marsha. I'm like, sure. Almost everyone does. Yeah, as soon as I saw her, I said, holy <laughs> shit, Marsha Brady. Yep. And she has the perfect look for the character they're yes. for here. Uh, the character is repugnant, but she's a lot of fun to watch in this movie. She's awful. And she, yeah, she's instantly harassing Rochelle. And when Rochelle's trying to do a dive, they're both on the diving team. Rochelle takes this... Rochelle stunt double takes this really awful landing in the pool and 
wondered initially, I was like, how racially charged is this going to get in terms of the harassment she's experiencing? And it turns out the very next scene, quite racially charged. Yep. And yeah, Christine makes it very obvious that she is racist as hell and just how repugnant this character's in. It's kind of ironic that they made racism Rachel True's arc in this because there were a lot of racism issues in and around the film for her, uh, including the fact that she's the only one of the four girls that doesn't have an arc with her parents. Like her parents yep. aren't introduced in it. There was a scene where her mom answered the door, but that got cut and they made it have a Rachel True answering the door. And apparently it showed up a lot on the uh, press tour. Uh, hmm. I'm, I'm going to read another quote. This is from her. There was a publicity junket that they were only going to take the other three girls to. At the time, 20 years ago, I was like, oh, it's me. It's me. It must be me. And now I realize it wasn't me. It's marketing. They didn't think I, it was going to get a black audience as my guest. That would never happen today. If you had four leads in a movie, you will take all four leads. But that's something that people don't quite understand. It's like, why do black people still whinge on about that? Well, because it stuck with me all these years. That for some reason, I wasn't as important. Now, I did eventually get added to that junket because one of the other actresses said, you should really bring her. Then the next year, Firuza, Robin, and Nev were all at an MTV Movie Awards, and I was not. Granted, mm. those girls had all worked more than me. At the time, I just said, oh, it's probably because Firuza's known and Nev is on a TV show. I'm kind of 50-50 on it. It's also that they were white. And <laughs> yes. Yep. Oh, my gosh. I think it's important to recognize that because it's, it's distinct in the film that she doesn't have anything outside of the girls in terms of her arc. It's her and diving. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Two things on that one. That situation came up pretty recently. I believe it was Amazon that this movie was recently made available on Prime or some other streaming service. And in the link to it, it said starring Robin Tunney, Nev Campbell, Feruza Balk. That's it. Ouch. They left out Rachel True. And That's there was a hubbub awful. about it online because it was Dear like, uh, you can't just stop with three people. Rachel True is in this. You need to not omit her. So that exact same scenario that you're describing from decades ago came up as recently as this year, essentially, which is depressing. But yeah. one thing I will mention, again, another script nugget. In the opening of the movie, after we see Sarah's house, we get a montage sequence with all the girls at home. So we actually see them before we meet them at school. So we do see Rochelle's family in the script and it establishes, I believe she's the only daughter in the family. She does have brothers. She has this icy relationship with her parents where it's obviously they have high expectations for her and they're putting pressure on her. And it also establishes that she's bulimic. So that is one of her runners for the movie is her being bulimic. And it's what the other characters speak derisively of her character about like her friends in this coven frequently refer to her as a barf machine oh frequently through the original script and speak ill of her in that way. So she does get a little bit more to do in terms of the family context in the script. And yeah, it's, it's decidedly noticeable in the finished film that all that stuff was omitted. Like, Oh, and honestly, Rachel true is my favorite part of this movie. I think most of the cast is terrific, but I think Rachel true is just fantastic. She's distinctly more, like her role feels more inhabited and believable than to me, Nev Campbell's like Nev Campbell was in this, but she's just such a blank during the, during the whole thing. And I know she's a good actress. It just felt like she was barely there. Whereas Rachel true felt present. Eh, I disagree on that one uh, with Nev. Uh, I, I feel that she was actively trying to be just in her shell and contained and cut off in the world. Cause she was just so, self-conscious of her burns i thought that really came across and i felt she really burst out of that after the change later but i agree that uh 
Rachel did a great job. The the best scene I think from Nev Campbell, at least the only one that really left an impression on me, was it was actually cut. It's one of the deleted scenes on the DVD where she's trying to get Robin Tunney to cure her scars, and she she's very good in that. But the rest of the film, I don't know. She just she just left me a little cold in this. I quite liked her in it, but I'll get more into Nev Campbell and the other cast members later. There'll something specific I'll bring them up in. Either way, it's nice when the racist girl's hair falls out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Second movie we're doing in two episodes in a row where a character has enormous chunks of their scalp fall out in the shower. But yep. but before we Good get point. that, after we get the introduction of the Christine Taylor character, we get all the characters back at home. Well, actually, before this, we quickly established, speaking of the character Bonnie played by Nev Campbell, circling back to her burns, we get a sequence of her and her mother visiting a doctor who says, hey, we got this new form of gene therapy we're going to try. It's relatively non-invasive, <laughs> which is basically us putting you underneath an enormous sewing machine. Yeah, she basically and... gets like, a, like they start tattooing her body with medicine. <laughs> it's yes. like, ow! Define non-invasive. Yeah. And, and the, the doctor's played by Brenda Strong, who I like, mostly yeah. because of Starship Troopers, which is way more of a touchstone film for me than it should be. But she's one of the Starship captains on Starship Troopers the very next year. So we'll bring this up now since you brought up the deleted scene. In the finished film, we get the sequence with Bonnie, and then there's magic used later. And then when Bonnie goes for her follow-up visit, everything is cured. And like Jake mentioned, there's a deleted scene on the DVD where Bonnie's in the hospital asking Sarah to cure her scars. In the original script, as it's constructed... A lot of the scenes in the finished film are moved around and all the stuff with Bonnie and her scars was all together. And that was later. So it went right from the first gene therapy session to Sarah visiting her in the hospital and Sarah using magic on her. And then it cut immediately to the scars being gone the next day. Nice. So that was all huh. strung together back to back. So it wasn't spread out with and seemed like it was over time. It was all in this very short span initially and happened much later. So it makes Sarah's impact on getting her scars to heal much more apparent and the script also establishes one of the bits from the deleted scene which sarah in a staggering act of cruelty when she visits bonnie in the hospital she says i brought you something to snack on and she brings her a box of Snackwell's cookies and i don't get upset about much but i snack cookies are fucking disgusting <laughs> I hate cookies. when i was growing up like every now and again my family would go on you know we're, eat we're eating healthier now and we're switching over and more vegetables we got a bought a juicer and we'd go through these things that lasted like three days and then we'd give up on it but we went through this binge of snack wells and snack wells are so goddamn disgusting and <laughs> i saw it and it says deleted scene for the film and i said oh man snack wells must have paid a bit for that awful product placement of their garbage ass product and then i went and read the script <laughs> it's in the script it <laughs> says snack wells in the script. <laughs> like, oh. they're just coming for you eric they're coming for oh, you just a oh, little discs of black magic oh awfulness oh, snack wells, i hate you um Look, I'm with you. Snack balls were terrible. Snack I don't even know if they still universe. make them, but the world is all gone to shit, so I assume snack balls are still part of it. But we've mentioned before our desperation for sponsors, so I'm willing to stifle some bile at if Snackwells wants to sponsor the Scary Stuff podcast, we can. That be makes the snack me think of that old Onion article. <laughs> Eat them up, fuckers. <laughs> so I, can yeah. I can hear it now. It'll be me doing. Hi, everybody. Snackwells, bring you know, the, the delicious snack that brought to you by. And then just in the back, you just hear Eric going. Fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> just me biting through my restraints. <laughs> 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 Gross. We Icky. love this bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> 
So after this, after we get the introduction of the gene therapy sequence, which we'll circle back to later, we now get brief snippets of some of the girls at home. We get Sarah at home. This is where we get a flashback to her suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. So which we don't get a lot of. We just see she gets these images of her slitting her wrists and then drinking from a glass of water, which she then drops and it shatters. And that's all we pretty much get of that with Sarah. And then we cut to a scene with Nancy. Yes. So I, I need to say something about this. This movie jumps through so many hoops to establish that Sarah is a natural witch and therefore she's, you know, so inherently powerful because, you know, it's just, it runs in her family. She's a natural witch and, you know, just has it from birth. But it doesn't make sense to me that Nancy is not equally as powerful because Nancy's family has clearly, deliberately built their home on the convergence point of several trash family ley lines because, <laughs> because her house is ridiculous. We see it's raining outside of Sarah's home when we have her flashback, but then it cuts to Nancy's place where it is raining five times as much. <laughs> it's like five storms have converged over her place. There is an emaciated dog tied to a stake. <laughs> <laughs> in front of this house which is covered with miscellaneous debris <laughs> the music is instantly discordant and out of tune she goes into this home where the wallpaper is peeling there are already two bowls full of water catching runoff from the ceiling in which the power immediately shorts out her mother comes in swearing up a storm about how things are awful her stepfather is Carl Bertanalanaluski from Aqua Teen Hunger Force. <laughs> Not her stepfather, but her, her mother's her boyfriend. boyfriend. If she had grandparents, they would all be in one fucking bed like Charlie Bucket's family <laughs> from fucking Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's, it's nuts how awful her home is. And to make it worse, in the script, when she's talking about her childhood, she says, yeah, when I was little, my mom would give me vodka and juice when I was a kid, just so she could laugh at me being drunk. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. It is worth noting. First off, everything you said is absolutely correct. <laughs> but I do have to mention that the mom's boyfriend is played by John Kapalos, who I will always know deep in my heart of hearts, because I love him dearly, as Detective Skanky from Forever Night. Really? Yes. <laughs> I've only seen an episode or two. So. I love Forever Night. I don't know why. Just something about a late night detective who is also a vampire. It just like sits with me very well. Uh, I have yeah, a lot of nostalgia for early 90s syndicated TV. And I'm pretty oh, sure yeah. we own the DVD box set of Forever Night. You do? Nice. And it's actually <laughs> sitting on my shelf right now because you lent it to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess that's that confirmed now. Because I'm sitting here thinking, I could have sworn we own that. You do? Get Given the amount of time it's probably been since Nick took it, I'm pretty sure it's now it's Nick's common law DVD set, pretty much. <laughs> I've had it longer than you ever had it, so it's mine. Detective Skanky is mine. <laughs> we established that Nancy's home is ridiculously awful, which feeds into her arc in the movie. One thing I did like in this scene is when it cuts to Nancy, you know, in her room, just trying to shut the world out and she leans back on her bed and the, the fucking ceiling's dripping on her. 
two things. One, it was, you can move your head a little bit to the left, just two inches to the left and it won't be dripping right on you. But the other thing too, is she's cradling this stuffed spider as she does it, which I actually thought was a really nice touch that in the midst of this awfulness, it's, you know, just high school girl who's just cradling a stuffed animal as some semblance of comfort from this staggering trash convergence point that she lives on. Everybody needs a whoopee. You yep. know, for, for some reason, this is where I put my community connection in my notes. So I'm just going to read that now. <laughs> Uh, it, okay. Well, it's just it's a random one, and I I saw it, and I was like, well, this made me happy, so here it is. It's Firuza Balk did a lot of voice work, and one of the things she did was she voiced Lady Talak in the Lords of EverQuest video game. Oh, okay. Also in the Lords of EverQuest video game was Keith David, who voiced Lord Vec. Keith David played Elroy Potashnik in season six of Community. Hey. So there's the connection. Now there's oh, other ones, okay. but this was through an EverQuest video game, so obviously <laughs> that was the one I went with. <laughs> That makes it the best. That's awesome. I, I was just fascinated by that. She was, because I played that game, man. I, I, Lords of EverQuest was pretty fun. Keith David. Well, there you go. I don't know why this is where I put it in my notes and why I was thinking about that when I watched the film, but here we are. <laughs> so after we've established this bit of awfulness with Nancy, the girls meet the next day at school. They say, hey, we're going on a field trip. We get them on the bus heading off to this field trip in the woods of just this excursion with them. And this is where we get the uh, classic yeah, line. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm going to guess this is the iconic line of the yep. movie, which is them getting off the bus and the bus driver says, you know, hey, girls, watch out for those weirdos. And Feruza Balk drops the shades a bit and says, we are the weirdos, mister. And, and like, she gives oh, that smile. <laughs> it's the best. I would have could have sworn that they wrote that just for the trailer, but apparently not, at least according to uh, Andrew Fleming. Mm -hmm. But it was one of those like, that's... It, because that was that distinctly was the thing I most remembered about this film was that line and that scene. It stands out. Yep. That line, that scene, and 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 the uh, the Smith cover. Those are the things that really stood out for for me. And this is where we get the "It is better that you should rush upon this blade" bit, which we homaged in the opening, and we get them sitting around and pouring out some non-alcoholic Cabernet Sauvignon. Apparently, apparently that's a real wine brand. Ariel, I looked it up. And it was like, hey, it's actually non-alcoholic, which explains right. how they got it. And they prick their fingers, drop a bit of blood in there, pass it around, talking about all the things they want to get. Power, strength, and beauty. This is the part in the movie where they're the most connected. Like, this is the peak moment of happiness for them as, yep. as in all of their arcs. Yeah, and I mean, it's like most powerful, I guess. They're channeling their power. They're becoming a true coven. They're connecting. Uh, it, like, And this shows in the environment around them, like, now that they're kind of coalescing and coming into themselves, like the butterflies fly down and join them even. This is the moment where if their hubris didn't get in the way, they could probably have gone on to live really happy, normal lives. The butterflies are actually all digital, except for one, which flew onto the set while they were filming this shot, which nice. freaked everybody oh. out. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's, it's funny. They talked about with a lot of the digital effects in this that they tried to make most of the stuff very kind of magical realism, very subtle not super crazy or outlandish and part of it was budget but i think overall they did a really good job in this film with the effects yes. some of the effects work in this is quite good and holds up pretty well we're coming up on one of those here in a scene or two before that this scene establishes like nick mentioned all their wishes we specifically get nancy's wish which is going to make up you know the third act of this movie which is she wants to be suffused with the power of man on do 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 and then um, <laughs> We get the girls going back to school, and Chris has now apparently been glamored by Sarah's wish, where she mentioned, you know, I really want this asshole to not be an asshole and to also like me. And he he's fully smitten. Does. And he comes up and 
Sarah gets him to apologize and he says, you know, oh, I want to make things up to you. And he's, he's very over the moon for her. And I love that her first task for him is carry my shit, dick. <laughs> her book bag, her friend's book bag. And I'm just it's like, ah, that's right. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, he's instantly smitten with her, sits with her at mass. Then we cut to the sleepover sequence of the girls who are all having a sleepover. We're watching Wheel of Fortune and eating popcorn. I've said before Very on this pod, I was as lame as you could possibly get. In high school, you could not get any lamer than me. But even I wouldn't be watching Wheel of Fortune with my buddies if they over. And in the script, it was Home Shopping Network. I was like, yeah, that's, oh. that's a little bit better. It's Wheel of Fortune, man. Oh. <laughs> and this is where we get a scene that I remember from the ad campaign for this, yes. which is the light as a feather, sniff as a board sequence, which is Sarah tosses out. Have you ever tried this? The thing where you, you know, stick your fingers under someone and say light as a feather, stiff as a board, which they try out on Rochelle. And sure enough, they get her to levitate. And this is one of the effects bits that holds up pretty well. It's a tracking shot where the camera's on a fixed track rotating at a particular rate. So they composited two shots together and Rochelle is in, Underneath her clothing basically has a metal rig that she's in that keeps her fixed in place. But it holds up pretty well. Yeah. Um, and Practical it's, effects it's, almost always do, you know? Yes. Love practical effects. And it's also just a fun scene. This is a scene where just the dynamic of the four leads really comes through, which is yep. by far the film's biggest strength, which is just the dynamic of the actors in it. And yeah, this is a really fun bit, which again establishes that their magic is taking off a bit. But there's also the question of, is anybody beyond sarah really doing anything or is this all just you know basically run off from her that's what it all feels like and i yes it's never explicitly said in the film like, i guess at the very end but everything matches that yeah you know when she joins them stuff starts happening and then at the end when you know their relationship is well we'll get into that but basically yeah it, it's it, you can see a clear connection between anytime stuff is happening it's because sarah's involved yeah, up until Nancy sticks a penny in the theological light socket right yep. for the start of the third act. Yes. Yeah, pretty much everything is, is Sarah's. Uh, that is true. N Nancy does actually find power. Yep. For a bit. But we get this fun sequence with them. This cuts to a montage of them at school. As we get them hanging out in Sarah's room at another sleepover, which is where we get established that Sarah's got a whole goddamn fireplace in her bedroom. Not the last time we'll see a bedroom that has a whole goddamn fireplace in it in this movie. This is where more of their magic starts to manifest itself. So Bonnie's scars have gone away when she goes for the follow-up appointment with her gene therapy. This is where Laura Lizzie, who's been picking on Rochelle, her scalp starts to fall apart, much like the old lady in the faculty. Unfortunately, Laura's response to this is not to get one of those spiffy caps that Sarah Michelle Geller got, and I know what you did last summer when her hair gets all fucked up. <laughs> but shut up, that's a cute hat. And so, yeah, everyone's pretty much getting what they want. Nancy's is delayed slightly, but then Nancy returns to the trash convergence point and her Carl Bruntanalanaluski <laughs> mom's boyfriend. They start to have a fight, yeah. Yeah, she just starts harassing her. Her mother sort of steps up for her. He threatens to hit her. And that's when Nancy lashes out, stop it. And then the, the microwave explodes, which you'd want to say is possibly a manifestation of Nancy's abilities. But again, it's as trashy as this place was. <laughs> it's a miracle that the whole place just didn't explode because of a gas main leak or some crazy shit. She also induces a fatal heart attack in the boyfriend. Yeah, she calls him a pig and he starts to look all panicky. 
And it turns out it's because of a heart attack. I was really hoping it was going to be the scene from Willow where Bad Morta says, yes! they're all pigs! And everyone starts to chase him. I was like, as if dude pigs. transmogrifies into a pig, it's going to be the best shit ever. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this, this asshole dies. And apparently whatever trash job he had had a $175,000 pension plan, which now goes to Nancy and her mom. Not too shabby for a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. I'll take it. Yeah, it's good. It's not fuck you money, but it's good money. Yeah, it's be comfortable money. Yeah, it's enough money to buy a swanky apartment, which the girls then go to visit. And this a is- jukebox filled with uh, Connie Francis, Connie, Connie Francis, Francis songs, an yep. ABC jukebox, presumably standing for always blasting Connie Francis. And <laughs> the apartment consists of the jukebox and a single couch. And Nancy's mother talks about how much she loves the couch in the script. The apartment is described as spacious, huge, dramatic windows, marble fireplace, but no furniture except for a jukebox and a couch made from the rear end of a 57 Chevy. Nice. (laughs) So we didn't quite get that. I wish we had, but we do get a pretty impressive couch. So at this point, they've all got their desires. Rochelle is being noticed by her swim coach and her bully is getting her one up. It's Bonnie's scars have been healed. Sarah's got the boy she liked and Nancy has power and stability. Uh, which is what she's always wanted. But Nancy at this point is really interested in expanding. They start looking into glamours, which they start playing with. Sarah like can change her eye color at first, and they kind of like go, oh, woo, at which point she changes her hair from brunette to blonde. Which is another kind of fun effect, I thought. Yeah. It and was it, a little... It did, I don't think it held up as well as the practical effects, but it, but it was nice. Well, it's part because she, what what's going on is she's wearing a green wig. Oh, wow. And they're they just changing the color shading it. on it. Yeah. Yep. They green screened oh, her, her hair. That's clever. But here's my thing with that sequence, which is knowing that she was wearing a wig for this movie because she'd shaved her head for Empire Records. Just tell your friends, you want to see some shit? Pull the wig off. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> just have her pull her hair off entirely in that scene. That I'm going nice. to make it reappear. Poof. <laughs> I'm really going to show you some shit. I think that would have been better. I think that would have been a lot better. <laughs> and cheaper. Would have been a lot cheaper. <laughs> no compositing needed. He says they worked on it for a fairly long time because to get it just right, the, the colors of it. And I think it's fine. The visual effect of it kind of changing as she runs her hair through her fingers that's neat than the colors themselves, which are a little awkward. But knowing it was a green wig, it was like, shit, just made her hair turn green. Show us that wig. (laughs) I I admit, the green wig bit made it more interesting. Yeah. But at this point, we cut to the middle of the night when Sarah wakes up to Chris outside her window at 3 a.m. He's just (laughs) there wanting to talk to her. And he's like, he's like, why don't we move in together? And he thinks he loves her. And she's like, just Go home. (laughs) Clearly, things have started to get out of control. This is beyond what she really wanted. And actually, this is maybe one of the creepier moments where Chris starts leaving. The guy in the street asks him if he needs any help. And Chris says, no, nobody can help me. They're like, oh, prior to that, I like the way he plays this. He's like, I can't stop thinking about you. I don't don't know why. (laughs) I can't eat. (laughs) I can't sleep. I was thinking we could move in together. <laughs> it's all the, so nonchalant. I just, yep. it, I really enjoy it. In the script, he knocks on the door first, talks to her dad. And he says, so, so when's she going to be out of the bath? And dad says, uh, I don't know. She's, she's prone to staying in there for days or weeks at a time. <laughs> and, and Chris says, really? <laughs> no. <laughs> so there's a little bit of, he's so far glamored. He can't get the obvious humor, which was kind of fun. Really? Nice. (laughs) 
it's just so casual. It's it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It just makes me laugh every time. Yeah, why don't we move in together? It's three o'clock in the morning. It's just to him, it's the most reasonable thing in the world, and he. Mm-hmm. I, it's just well done in my estimation. Like he plays vacuous very well. <laughs> I said at the beginning, I find him inherently creepy in oh, yeah. general. So now when we get to the point in the movie where he's supposed to be creepy, that really clicks for me. Yep. Yeah, him as generic eye candy, not so much, but creepy. <laughs> I'm feeling it. You should see him as a serpent in Riverdale. Then he'll he'll really get your engine running. Ooh, sounds creepy. <laughs> I like it. So yeah, the next day they all meet up at the occult shop and Sarah's talking to the proprietor, like, how do you undo a love spell? And she's kind of like, how do you stop a flowing river? You know, it's this thing's going to have to just spend itself out. You have to wait it out. Good luck to you. But then they get into the nature of magic, that true magic is neither black nor white. You know, it's very much like nature, that the good or bad is in the heart of the witch, that life gives balance, that whatever you give out, you get back times three. And that's a big central tenet of Wicca, actually, is that the uh, you get back three times what you put out. You know, oh, really? Was, yeah. I didn't know if that was a, a script thing or an actual thing. That's nifty. Nope, it's an actual thing. Yeah, this is a, an interesting bit of exposition that Lirio gives to Sarah, which is going to come back in the rest of the film. In the meantime, Nancy's looking at the best magic eye book ever, which is Invocation of the Spirit. When she opens <laughs> it up and the shit starts moving, she's like, oh, I'm buying this shit. <laughs> and she does buy it. Now she has money. <laughs> well, she buys it, but like the proprietor's like, you know, hey, you know, be careful. This is for experienced witches. And she's just, she immediately in that moment, was just like the quintessential teenager of like, fuck you, ma. You know, <laughs> I know everything and I'm fine. No matter what you say to me, no matter how experienced or how much you've done this or I like can sell it. Nah, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, this is very dangerous magic that you shouldn't be playing with. Does it mean you're not going to sell it to me? No, it means there's no refunds. <laughs> I'll still sell it to you. <laughs> I may be Wiccan, but I'm still a capitalist. <laughs> High ass rents in L.A. <laughs> so now we cut over to them actually going to the beach. At this point, Nancy is ready to invoke Manon wants to become one with the spirit and they bring their familiars rochelle brings a clownfish to symbolize her connection to water and diving bonnie brings a butterfly to bring her to symbolize her connection to beauty sarah brings a parakeet to Mm -hmm. symbolize her i forget which one this is connection to annoying (laughs) (laughs) i believe it's for uh freedom and and power if i recall well it's to let you know that she's crazy because bird people are crazy (laughs) and then nancy comes with a snake because she wants power and control. She wants to be able to be in control of her life. Yeah, she says specifically the serpent's a very powerful being. So we start to loop in some of the serpent stuff that's been running through the film. You know, and then, clearly she's the Slytherin, so you know. <laughs> and the first thing they do is prepare the circle. They prepare the sacred space. And funny enough, from the interview with the uh, the fellow uh, Wiccans I saw, they're doing it wrong. Viewing purposes, it's great to have them all facing inward because you can do the whole circle shot. But they should all be facing outward. To actually be shielding off, you know, <laughs> to creating the, the sphere of protection as such. They're, they're facing the wrong way. <laughs> well, it's probably good that they were doing it the wrong because they already had some problems shooting this scene. No, actually, it's completely incorrect. By facing the wrong way, they leave themselves open to outside sources. <laughs> there, I, I've, I've got a, another quote from Fleming on this. This is about specifically the beach scene, which is there were some weird things. When they were calling the corners on the beach, the park ranger had said, this is the highest the waves will go at high tide. So we moved our uh, circle of fire inland from there. But it was just this odd thing where when the girls started the incantations, the waves kind of came up. 
At one point, a wave came and wiped out the whole set. It's actually in the movie very briefly when the camera is spinning around, a wave wipes out the fire. It's just seemed like every time we went outside, something happened. It was a spooky atmosphere on set, but I think people joked about it. It's interesting. Apparently, Manan is uh, very close to an actual Wiccan deity, Mananan, which is a ocean deity. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, every time they started, apparently it was like always calm waves until they started doing the ritual, at which point the waves just started bashing against (laughs) the coast. It was particularly bad because apparently at one point where she does the final we invoke the scream, like all the power went out. They're like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a wrap for today. (laughs) We got to go. (laughs) I think this is really the check the gate. We're done. Money scene in the entire film. I think this whole sequence on the beach. Well, it's huge. Calling the corners, the lightning, what comes next with her walking on the water when they wake up, the sharks, which are all rubber sharks. Hell, the lightning blast. Nancy gets blasted by lightning right at the end of the ritual. Yeah, yeah. she gets the thunderbolt and lightning treatment. The girls wake up to find Nancy walking on water. Then they round a corner. Nancy's still acting weird. And then they round this corner and they see that there are all these sharks that are beached. And Nancy's saying, you know, this is a gift. These are my gifts. I'm your daughter now. Yeah, Sarah looks less sure the whole time. But it really it really does set up the rest of the like Nancy walking in you know, on the water sets up the rest of this movie very yes. nicely. You yeah. know, the, the ominous shift and, and the coming conflict. Well, cause now while Sarah has been kind of carrying the coven and fueling their endeavors and, and the abilities they can have, Nancy now has officially brought into herself the spirit of Manon, which is, and turns out to be just too much for one person. <laughs> yeah. So, this is where I start to have problems with the film. So I hadn't seen this before, like I mentioned, and my overall perspective of the film is I think it's a quite a fun film and it's pretty good until it's suddenly not. And this is kind of where the movie blows a tire for me because conceptually, I understand obviously what they're going for, but the pivot of all the girls to suddenly being so power mad and so self-involved felt too sudden where it's like obviously this is where you're going but it really felt like a left turn like they just really turned into it quick specifically with this sequence because all of a sudden now rochelle and bonnie are much more self-involved than they were previously i could forgive it for nancy since it was always kind of there under the surface and now she's been fully empowered it made sense to some degree but you're right with rochelle and bonnie it's a little little faster than with nancy too it's you know there's that bit of Nancy has things pretty good at the moment, all things considered. Well, obviously, all the girls got their wish, but with Nancy being you know pretty well off financially, asshole boyfriend is out of the picture, or stepfather. But I'll mention in the script, there's one bit where they try and help this a bit. In the script, before this sequence, after her and her mom move into the swanky new apartment, she hears noise in the apartment at night, and Nancy gets up, and her mom's bedroom door is open, and she goes in, And her mom is shooting up heroin with a random guy she met. And she's just sitting there doing drugs. And she says, yeah, sorry, honey. I told you I was going to quit. But hey, look at it this way. We can afford it now. Uh. And then the heroin addict turns to Nancy and says, you want me to do you too? And Nancy leaves. So I like the concept of the movie establishing, even though you got what you want, you still got some big ass problems and you didn't actually get everything you ever wanted. I think that was a clunky way to do it and it doesn't read great. But something of that nature, I would have appreciated 
for Nancy's arc because it, as it is, yeah, it feels a little shallow kind of the justification the movie gives you. Like, obviously I, I kind of disagree in, in that I feel they've well established by this point that Nancy has been feeling powerless for most of her life and always has to some degree. And now that she's had a taste of power, it's just that first taste was not enough. Like yeah. the minute she had it, she wanted more. I think they made that clear that she wanted more. It's kind of established. It bothers me less, far less with Nancy than it does with Rochelle and Bonnie. Fair. And it's Rochelle and Bonnie where I really find it problematic. But the main reason this bothers me, even aside from those characters are, and sorry for the tangent, but I was going to bring this up eventually. I've never been crazy about Robin Tunney. I'm sure she she's nice, but I've never liked her in any of the things I've seen her in, which is just a handful of things. I barely remember Empire Records, but a lot of the other things I've seen in, I've just never really liked her performance in anything. When I saw her in this, I thought she was fine for the first like two thirds or so of this film when everything's kind of light and playful and it's just about the dynamic of the group. And I thought she was fine. When the script pivots at this point where everyone else is becoming power mad and instead of being playful, she's now on the defensive and is having to be concerned, afraid, or some variation thereof, it really falls apart for me. And I don't think she does a particularly good job carrying it. And okay. so that's just me. So that this is where the movie kind of blew a tire for me a little bit. And I still like the film quite a bit. But it was interesting watching it. It was like, man, this is really great. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, now it's really kind of coming off the rails a bit for me. But the reason I mentioned that also, going back to what we said earlier with Jake talking about Nev Campbell, was Robin Tunney originally auditioned for Bonnie. She wanted yep. the Nev Campbell part. And the studio said, no, we think you're going to, we, we saw your audition footage and we think you'd be a better lead in this. And we want you to play Sarah. And she needed some convincing to do it. I think the film would be much better off if you swapped Nev Campbell and Robin Tunney. Mm. and i think that would fix a lot of the film's problems because robin tunney would have less range of emotion she'd really need to go through and i know nev campbell from her later works is capable of doing everything that robin tunney has to do in this film and i think nev campbell would have done a better job hitting those notes i love nev campbell i think she definitely could have hit it out of the park absolutely just a, a tangent again i i quite like this film overall but this was a part of the film i was like oh structurally some stuff that's a little off but right after this we get one of the bits of the film that legitimately shocked me which is the sequence where sarah is riding with chris shortly after the sequence on the beach and she's telling chris you know all oh, my friends are off to some weird stuff and chris is again being very creepy and very you know overtly romantically aggressive towards her and i was expecting the chris arc to go down the avenue of potential self-harm or suicide is where i thought this was going as, you know, sort of the demonstrations of affection. Indeed, it is not. It goes nope. the other way. I was not expecting to see attempted sexual assault in this movie. So I was yep. legitimately shocked when that happened. You want to know what's worse about that? That was the day the friends and family were all on set. Oh, oh my God. Filmed that. What the? <laughs> poorly timed. Yes. Andrew Fleming talks about that. It's like, this was poorly timed. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick, before that, I think it's important to note, we have a scene where Rochelle runs into Laura in the shower where she's basically almost bald and just desperate. Like the hair just won't stop coming out. And it's really set up to like show that Rochelle's feeling bad about her action. And so much so that she looks at the mirror and even her mirror image turns away from her. 
That's my favorite subtle effect in the film. It was a good subtle effect. At the same time, are we really supposed to feel bad about the racist? Because I just wasn't feeling it. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no, no, I, no. I didn't feel bad about the racist. Great. Not, not so much, you know. It apparently upset Rochelle. I didn't see any sympathy for Laura, but I, I felt <laughs> I felt amused by her choice in friends because as she's sitting there weeping in the shower, as her scalp is essentially bald and bleeding and clumps of hair, and her friend's first response is, Laura, what's the matter? The fuck do you think's the matter? <laughs> Use Two your goddamn guesses. eyeballs. I, I like that scene in part because I like racists getting what's coming to them. But also, I, I really do like mirror effects of that. that are, you know, like you're looking in the mirror and it looks the wrong way or it does something else. I find those creepy. Not It wasn't creepy in this instance, but I, it was subtle enough that it doesn't really call attention to itself. Like You wouldn't necessarily notice anything happens, but it gives you the subtle impression that something is off. And I like that. I'm just glad it was subtle. There's another great mirror effect in the film, which is probably my favorite effect in the entire film later like on. Mirrors become a big theme towards the uh, the last scene. Yeah. Yeah. Also, my least favorite special effect in the entire film is related to mirrors. <laughs> mirrors. <laughs> I'm just glad that the, the effects with mirrors are relatively subtle. For some reason, I don't handle mirror horror well. Yeah, I know. Which makes me really excited to do a mirror episode. <laughs> Except I'm afraid if we do that, you're going to do spiders and I won't watch arachnophobia. So, you know. <laughs> Who knows? Oh, I've only gotten a shot of Nick's smile at that point. I wasn't fast enough on the screen grab button. <laughs> One thing I noticed is like, so they're going over consequences, basically. Rochelle's dealing with her consequence of going, oh, I think I've gone too far. And you have Sarah deal with the consequence of this love spell has gone too far. And Nancy currently is not dealing with too many consequences because she's still kind of high on life with the invoking. The one thing we never really see is there are really no consequences for Bonnie. And I have to think this is because Bonnie directed her energies inward instead of outward to some degree. I'm not looking for revenge. I'm not looking to be better than anyone else. I just want these goddamn scars to go away. And I have to feel that some of the intention there was that she's having less blowback because her intentions were less destructive. Could be. Could be, yeah. Depends on your read of the final scene, too, where she's wearing the enormously you know, long-sleeved outfit, which is with the, the high collar and whatnot, which is, is the implication that, oh, her scars are back, you know, times three. I did not get that implication. Yeah, it's, it depends on how you read it, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. To skip ahead uh, back on onto track, you know, so yeah, the he, he attacks Sarah, and she runs away and tells the trio. Yeah, she runs away. She runs to Rochelle's house. Like Jake mentioned, there's a deleted scene with Rochelle's mother at this point. She tells the girls what happened, and Nancy says, all right, well, where's Chris? I'm going to go confront him. And quick script note, originally, Rochelle's there, and they call Bonnie over, and Sarah tells them what happened, and she specifically says she doesn't want to tell Nancy. Because Nancy is already acting, you know, a little bit out of it and a little bit abnormal after the incident on the beach. And the script notes behind Sarah in a shadow, something moves. Nancy, if I didn't know better, I'd say you don't trust me. Sarah, no, I just think that... Nancy, shut the fuck up. Touching a scrape on Sarah's cheek. I want to talk to Chris about this. Sarah, please don't. He would have never tried this if I hadn't... Nancy, that's how they've gotten away with it for so many centuries. She's a temptress. She made him do it. Well, that doesn't work for me. Chris used to grab at me at parties after the game, drunk, victorious, and I gave him what he wanted, and for that, he treats me like a slut. And then she continues and said, when Chris hurts you, he hurts all of us. We act as one. And then she goes after him at the party. 
what we get in the finished film is basically Nancy just saying, oh, I'm going to confront him about this. Where is he? And they think there's a party. I thought it was interesting, A, having, again, the implication of Sarah already being where something's up with Nancy, but specifically the, the block of dialogue where Nancy's talking about, this is what men always do to women, and I'm fucking sick of it. They may have filmed it. Because Fleming talks about how that scene was cut down significantly from what they originally had. It wasn't in the deleted mm. scenes, but they could have done that, and they shouldn't have cut that. No, they shouldn't have at all. Apologies for all the script tangents, but I thought some of these are interesting. No, they're great. It's all Thank interesting. You. That's what we're here to do. And then Nancy goes off to confront Chris at the party, which is interesting that he would even be at the party. It was like, if he's so far gone at this point, wouldn't he be just like stalking Sarah's house or like doing laps around it or some creepy shit? Like busy but, tying himself to the underside of her car. Yeah, so <laughs> something ridiculous at this point, you know. But no, he's just says he's at this party. Nancy goes there, says, hey, Chris, I want to talk to you. And Nancy takes him upstairs. This is where we get another swanky bedroom with a roaring fucking fireplace in it. And Fleming's really proud of the fire shots in this scene. Yeah. They, <laughs> like it, it, it's all like he he shot it in the fire because that's representing what's going on with Nancy and all this and that. And that's why, like, even the scene, but when, sense. when she's lying on top of him, you can see the fire between them. And it's one of those like, nice. yeah, OK, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the intent. Good on you for being an artist. And this is where Nancy glamours herself to look like Sarah and Chris is instantly fooled and begins making out with her. The glamour scene here is one of their least favorite shots in the entire film for Firuza and Robin Tunney. Oh. Because the way they did it is they shot both of them doing the exact same motions Move. right, and mm -hmm. then morph them. But they apparently had to do take after take after take to get it exactly right. Yep. You know, like their pupils had to be looking at the same point, And they apparently did not enjoy the process. Well, you do the same thing 500 times. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. With such specificity. Yeah. That'd be a yep. pain. One thing I enjoyed about this scene, once the other girls show up, is because of the angles of the shots, we can see the exact window of time at which... Feruza Balk and Skeet Ulrich are making out because when they start, the clock says 12.07. And later on, when Sarah comes in, it says 12.13. It was like, hey, I know exactly how far in they got. <laughs> that was exactly six minutes. <laughs> six minutes in heaven. So yeah, Sarah comes in, Nancy drops the glamour, and Chris starts to panic. And, you know, Nancy just kind of goes ballistic. Chris says, I'm sorry. Nancy says, you know, he's sorry, he's sorry. And her magic kind of spins up. You don't even exist. Yeah, she's like floating across the floor on her on her toes. Ah, oh, I, I like that. That was nice. I love it when Firuza goes full Firuza. Yes, when she, she is loses so it. good at it, and it's so much fun. Like I said in the beginning, these are the parts I remember most when she just like throws into it. You know, it's, it's she is in the moment, and I'm down for it. You ever see that gif of a cat, and it has that syndrome that makes it kind of go, you know, looking all around. Do you know the gif I'm talking mm -hmm. about? Yeah. When I watched this scene, that was what I thought about, except instead of looking cute, it's a person screaming, but it's still the, the face motions and all that that Fires of Bulk does, like, you know, eyes go in different directions. I don't know. It made me think of that gif, which is, <laughs> is probably a terrible story, but I'm not going to cut it out when I edit this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, she's terrific in this. And I also one bit I particularly like is when before she glamours herself to look like Sarah I and mean, Chris kicks her off the bed and she has this bit where she kind of pounds at her temples a bit in frustration and it's yep. very natural. It's very real feeling. So yeah, she's one of my favorite bits of this film. And when she's claiming that Chris doesn't exist shortly after this, he doesn't because he gets blown the hell out of the window and falls down to the pavement to his death. <laughs> and we can hear a distant scream. And then we cut to you know, the girls afterwards and 
shortly after we get what I believe was another trailer shot, which is Sarah at home kind of tossing in bed when the window opens and the three girls fly in and begin harassing her. It's important to note uh, just before that. So Sarah is using a picture of Nancy and she's using a ritual of trying to bind her against harm, harming others and harming herself. There's a much longer cut scene right around here where Nancy freaks out and yells at all three of them for different reasons. And it, you can tell why it's cut, but it's interesting where it's placed. So if you have the DVD or the, the Shout Factory or whatever, watch the cutscenes. It's it's kind of an odd one, but it fleshes it out a little bit. But then we have a scene Jake hates because they fly in in her dream. It doesn't happen. And they <laughs> strangle her in her dream. And she wakes up all discombobulated. And the problem I don't mind here, it when it's so blatantly obvious that it's a dream. But also, it, it, it feels like a Lost Boys callback to me, so I kind of dig it. Oh, visually, yes. Visually, very much so. This establishes that by invoking Manon into herself, Nancy has now surpassed Sarah in power. And that Sarah's ability to bind her did not work because of this. And they attacked her in her dreams, which they basically admit to when they confront her in school the next day. Yeah, this is where Bonnie and Rochelle have fully pivoted to more self-involved and more outwardly aggressive to Sarah and very much following in Nancy's stride and three of them confront Sarah in the bathroom and say don't try that shit again and also implied that the dream was not a dream when Bonnie says specifically how have you been sleeping Sarah I I very much got the feeling that Rochelle and Bonnie Bonnie more so obviously Rochelle has has some doubts with what's going on but both of them are kind of like happy with where they are right now They're, they're enjoying the power they they love that the coven has gotten to where it's gotten them and Nancy, to their eyes, is just trying to kind of maintain that. And while it's clear as day that Nancy's like, don't fuck with me, I, I can do anything. They're like, it'll be fine. Nancy will get Sarah to stay. We'll be good. That was the feeling I got from that. They're very much the betas of the social clique. They're like, we trust our alpha here. It's going to be OK. The driving scene a little bit earlier in the film explicitly says that, Mm -hmm. that they're followers and it's a duel between the two leaders, Yep, which is, yeah, it's interesting. My favorite part of the bathroom scene is that little wave that Furrier's Balk gives at the end when she's leaving. It's just so creepy. Oh, yeah. Sarah flees from there and goes back to Candles, 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 Lyria's place (laughs) and says you know basically oh things have gone to shit all my friends have gone nuts i think we maybe kind of summoned a god and lirio says all right come back with me to the adult section in the back we get to go behind the curtain <laughs> and we get to go behind the curtain and we see what's back there and which is dirt and inventory basically but it's a pentagram <laughs> in the dirt with little wooden shelves around it with you know various accoutrements but specifically it is a location of power as lirio says and then she lights up all the candles at once. Yes. Which was funny because like, uh, like just to, up to the shop's namesake. Yeah. Just to come back, the interview I, I heard, it was it was funny listening to, to Wiccans describe this scene. They're like, look, Wicca is not fancy. <laughs> when you make magic, it's slow term. Things happen over time. You're kind of like easing the tides of energy in life and things will come to you. Things don't just happen. You know, the only time you're going to have instantaneous effects like this is when something's gone wrong. if you're causing things to happen right now it is not on purpose and you don't want it (laughs) i found that very amusing yeah lirio is starting to do magic enchantment with sarah when very shortly thereafter there's a pyrotechnics display apparently brought on by nancy and sarah panics and says i'm 
getting out of here and bolts before Lirio can go any further. And in my least favorite shot in the entire film, other than the maggots, is her running down that alley in such an awkward fashion. It's just so gawky. (laughs) It's like, oh. She runs all the way home to find the place abandoned. Her parents are no longer there, but a phone book is open with a note regarding a time and specific flight number for a flight back to San Francisco. And Sarah's trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Nancy calls her and says, hey, you might want to turn on the news. Your parents are on that plane because they thought you went to San Francisco. And Sarah turns on the news and the plane has crashed. This may be the most messed up part of the movie. Honestly, (laughs) your parents are dead. Like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of the Thomas Jane Punisher sequence with standing over John Travolta and tossing all the photos down. I killed your mom. (laughs) I killed your stepmom. I killed your dad. And now I'm going to make you kill yourself. (laughs) Oh, my God. Man, I wonder what Frank Castle's grief hair would have been like. Sorry. <laughs> We're circling back to t- podcast favorite Thomas Jane. <laughs> what his, uh, watch episode four for the discussion of Thomas Jane grief here. Um, so the coven. <laughs> so now the coven follows up the, the parent uh, murder with snakes everywhere and there's newts and tarantulas and mice and maggots and scorpions and cockroaches and there's a goddamn rat in your hair bugs there's a lot of bugs and animals just everywhere yeah we've gone from candles 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 to critters 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 yep let me i have another quote from the that same article about the bugs and shit from andrew fleming it was not a big budget movie Visual effects were much more expensive at the time, or they were harder to do, but Sony Imageworks was at the center of cutting edge on of, of effects work at the time. It created proprietary software to make those butterflies happen. It was a combination of real and digital. It was a lot of work, definitely. The snakes were all real, except for the one shot where Firuz's hair turns into snakes. At one point, the animal wrangler said we had 10,000 snakes. Wow. A lot of them were small, <laughs> but we had giant buckets everywhere. Robin was the one who really had to put up with it. She was fine with the snakes. Oddly enough, she had a phobia of birds, so we didn't have any birds. I love snakes. <laughs> Look, like, I like snakes, and I, I'm okay with like nope. cockroaches and stuff, but I do not care for tarantulas, and I don't like maggots, and I don't like like wormy things. So this this was not my favorite scene in film. So so what I'm hearing here is we need to do an arachnophobia slash. Black Christmas remake slash Anaconda film. <laughs> Hit all three bases, yeah. I'm, yeah, snakes are mine, and Jake's all spiders. Yeah, there's, we definitely there's need to a do phobia an for everybody. In I'll, this I'll tell you right now, there are two movies I will not watch for this podcast: Arachnophobia, Arachnophobia, and Squirm. Oh, Squirm is ooh. I, don't know. I will <laughs> not watch one. Squirm. That's if if you one. guys want to do it, we can do it, and I will wing it, but I will not watch the film. <laughs> the part of Jacob will be played by Fred in that episode. <laughs> I still, to this day, cannot eat spaghetti, because I saw uh, like five minutes of Squirm when I was a young kid. Squirm is vile. I have never been able to get past that, much to my parents' chagrin and my brother's constant amusement. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the amount of concentration I have to do to not think about things when I'm eating ramen, which I love, is extraordinary. <laughs> Why does he always eat ramen blindfolded? <laughs> I can't eat udon noodles. See, you should have told me this. You know, it's like now we're gonna like eat noodles together someday, and it's gonna be like, don't say it, don't say it, don't ruin his fucking meal, don't say it, <laughs> and, and don't because what will happen is I will lose my appetite immediately, and then you will be covered in ramen. <laughs> 
I'll still eat what, the egg though, man. That makes it delicious. But what'll oh, happen yeah. if it, if I bring it up as you're like slurping the last noodle down? What what will happen there? Oh, then I'll just beat you. That's fair. Okay, respect. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, like I, I'm suddenly nauseous. Thing is, I will lose my appetite immediately. Makes sense. It's incredibly juvenile, but I cannot get past it. I don't blame you. Makes total sense. This is my brother's favorite thing in the world. He loves this about me. He used to chase me with worms and throw them at me. <laughs> hey, the brain is hardwired to connect bad experiences to food, like massively. So like if you have the flu and like it hits out of the blue hard while you're eating like chicken nuggets and then you get sick, your body will actively say chicken nuggets are goddamn disgusting for like at least three years. Like that's how hardwired your brain can be. Really funny that you mentioned that because I have thrown up after eating McDonald's chicken McNuggets and I cannot eat them anymore. <laughs> yep. Yeah. The, and it, it clearly had nothing to do. It was I was in Missouri and we went to a nightclub, me and a couple friends, and we ate fucking chicken McNuggets on the way. And then I drank a whole bunch of whatever at the mm -hmm. nightclub. And on the way back, I was asleep in this car out in the middle of fucking nowhere, Missouri. Woke up, threw up all over myself. And I've not had them since. It, it's <laughs> Actually, very... that's true. I've had them once or twice since, but I just, I can barely eat them. <laughs> it's very much an evolutionary trait to ensure the continuation of the species. It's like, if you eat something and it makes you sick, your body's like, no, 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 no. Don't do that again. We want you to live. And that innate instinct has gone well to assist animals in <laughs> furthering their species. Yeah. I'm sure my life is better off not eating McDonald's chicken <laughs> McNuggets because I drank too much green shit in a Missouri nightclub. Yep. Columbia, Missouri, in fact, if any of you are curious. So back to the film. <laughs> also, this the same night, the only night I've ever been there, one of the two times I've ever let somebody do a tarot reading on me, which ties back into witchcraft. Well, maybe it doesn't. I just me. piss people off, but we'll go with it. <laughs> Yeah, but in the meantime, there's a phobia for everybody in this finale, and Sarah heads back upstairs after Nancy has outlined, yeah, your parents are dead, and now we're going to make you kill yourself, and we've already pre-written the note for it, slashes Nancy's wrists, causing her to bleed all over the floor in the note. Sarah is, you know, saying this can't be real, and Nancy's response is, then why are you still bleeding? Of course it's real, with this much Gustav Klimt art around? Yes, <laughs> which is noted specifically on the paper towel dispenser in the bathroom sequence. Yep. By this point, Nancy is full-on power mad. She's like, ah, you know, I can do whatever I want! Then sends her two minions to do her dirty work, and basically tells Bonnie and Rochelle, go up there and finish her off. And this is the moment where Sarah realizes that if she's going to combat them, she too needs to invoke the spirit of Manon. And so she starts doing that and pulls that spirit into her, at which point she immediately stops Rochelle and Bonnie from coming any closer by the power of three by three, make them see to see the effects of their negative actions with their magic. Mm -hmm. And so when they look in the mirror, Rochelle sees her hair fully devastated. And Bonnie, of course, looks in the mirror and sees the scars that she had but also they've spread. Now they're all over her face, which leaves them both so rattled they can't go further anymore. They turn around, bolt out of the house. They're done. Yeah, they're terrible. They get taken out quick. They <laughs> put up surprising. no fight whatsoever. Again, they're very clearly the betas of this clique. They don't have really have that much of a spine. Their strength comes from the people they're following. And the minute they have to... Yeah, but like bards are the betas in D&D, &D, but you're still getting the fight. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Nancy should have confronted them on their way down. I can't trust you two to do anything. All right, stand in the back and buff me while I go up there and take care of Sarah. It's just like Scooby <laughs> Shaggy. Get back here, you know? I mean, it's just, it doesn't, I don't know. You just heal me while I go tank Sarah. <laughs> this, this is when, when she sees the uh, the picture of her mom moving, too. Yep. Yeah, that precedes all the, the bit of her being infused by the spirit of Manon. Yeah. Because yeah, it mentions earlier that um, from the proprietor of the shop that you know her her mother's spirit is with her and that she draws some strength from that. And so this is just to kind of back that up, that, yes, your mom is here. She always has been uh, over you. So take that and survive this. You can get through this. Yeah, so now we get an extended, basically, battle of illusions sequence between Nancy and Sarah. And various people, you know, disguising themselves in different parts of the room and whatnot. Yeah, but the mirror um, scene I love in this, where, where Nancy is in front of the mirror, and then you see her reflection turn around and come out, and it's it's Robin Tony. I, I just really like mm. that effect a lot. That was nice, and she, like, walks out of it, yeah. That one's nice, and then in the course of the sequence, Sarah gains the upper hand. Starts to tell Nancy, you know, Nancy starts to apologize and Sarah starts to do an invocation, which is going to prevent her from doing harm. It's, you know, do no harm, do no harm. And Nancy's response is basically, don't do harm. I'll do all the harm I want. And draws a knife on her and lunges at Sarah. They wrangle a bit. Funny enough, I was like, I don't know if close combat with that kind of knife is going to come out with so few wounds. And then I actually read somewhere, and this makes sense, that it's intentional. That, you know, Nancy goes at her with the knife and doesn't hurt her at all with it because Sarah's binding spell has started to take effect. Her actual binding has gotten to the point where it is causing Nancy to fail at trying to stab her. I'm like, oh, that's nice. I like that. You see, it seems like that's how it should be. But when you listen to Peter Fleming on the commentary, he basically says, yeah, this is the one thing we did poorly is she kept having the knife and then not having the knife and then having the knife and not having the knife. And we just kind of <laughs> lost track of it. <laughs> yeah. and because of reshoots as well they were given oh, yeah. after they turned in the first draft of the film they were given more money to go punch up the last chunk of the film and i think the nifty sequence where they built a hallway on its side so nancy and sarah could crash into it as debris sort of flows horizontally into them that i'm assuming was all part of the reshoots because that's the sequence where the knife has just somehow disappeared and then manifests again at the end of that like i like nick's explanation better but yeah it's <laughs> I do like the one scene where so like Nancy like magics like a dresser and all this other crap into Sarah, smashing her into the wall. And as she pulls it all aside, trying to find Sarah's body to verify that she's been bested, as she pulls it out, all you see is just clothes. Like Sarah has mm-hmm. basically like melted out of the clothes and the wall to avoid the impact. And then she melts back into it and I'm like, oh, that was that was nice. I like that bit. <laughs> yeah, and gives Nancy a nice double stomp. sends her flying fleming talks about trying to describe that to people and having the hardest time making anyone understand what he wanted (laughs) fair i can see why that'd be hard to describe it's it's visually it's fantastic yeah it really works yeah nancy suffers a similar fate to chris where she just goes flying outside no she doesn't outside she goes down the hall into the mirror oh she goes down the hall into the mirror okay here's why i said that in i was gonna mention this later in the script she goes flying out the window like chris and breaks her goddamn neck. Oh, Nancy, shit. Nancy dies in the script. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, so, I actually think it's a better change that she doesn't. So, so, yes, I agree. We certainly wouldn't have the cheesy falling mirror effect that you get in this. <laughs> that, yeah, that was, oh, yeah, the, oh. the superimposed mirror shards. I was like, yeah, I know you're trying to hammer home the mirror imagery, but yeah, that's, no, we don't need the terrible. 
But at this point, you know, uh, Sarah finishes her binding on Nancy so that she can cause no harm to herself or others. And it's assumed that she does a similar binding to Bonnie and Rochelle because sometime later they show up on her doorstep still in very confident clothing and they uh, approach her and apologize. They feel bad about the attempted murder. (laughs) Ish, yeah. (laughs) They also further apologize for the glamour of her dead parents as you see her dad walk behind her. It was complete bullshit, just a lie just to try to get her um, off balance. And then they mention that they have lost their powers. And this is not surprising because the two of them have never invoked the spirit and any power they really had, they were uh, wheezing off of either Sarah or Nancy. So with mm-hmm. Nancy out of the picture and Sarah cutting them off, they're powerless. Interestingly, in the script, the pencil sequence at the opening where Bonnie sees Sarah practicing telekinesis with the pencil, in the script, that's reversed. Sarah sees Bonnie doing shit with the pencil. Ah. And it's the fact that Sarah keys in on it that makes Bonnie think, oh shit, she's our fourth. So Bonnie does get some semblance of doing something magical, but I like it better in the finished film, aside from Sarah just idly doing telekinesis in the back of the classroom. But it, it does help further the idea of, yeah, this is all just runoff from Sarah for the most part. And this is the scene where she does have the long sleeves and one could argue uh, that her scars have come back. I disagree, mainly just because she is still coming off way too confident and cocky. She was just nothing but like in her turtle shell for the whole movie until she lost her scars. And she has a level of confidence that I don't think she could have maintained if her scars have come back. So mm. that's that's my personal reading is that she's just happens to be dressing long sleeves. I don't think it actually has anything to do with her scarring. Yeah, it depends on how you want to read it. The The costume makes it nebulous. I was just taken with how nifty a top it was. I was like, oh, It was a great top. Cute. Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> it was very Tim Burton-y, but it's very cute. Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me that her scars would have come back, but. Now that you mentioned it, I could kind of see that read. It's not the one I would go in for, but I could kind of see it. I mean, that read implies it's some sort of glamour, like it's not real. But I honestly believe that Mm. through the magic, she healed herself, which seems to fit the rest of the movie. But then we do get another overt bit of magic, which is where they say, oh, she definitely lost her magic and start to walk away. Sarah turns around and says, fuck you say about me and summons (laughs) a lightning bolt, which blows off a tree branch and (laughs) comes crashing down, nearly hits the other two. And... Sarah glowers at them. Fuck your doubts. They go running off. (laughs) And then we get a glimpse of Nancy's fate. Locked away in a asylum of some sort or hospital where she is bound in bed. And apparently the do no harm even to yourself thing was a a little bit off because she's able to scuff her face up a bit. (laughs) She has her scratches. (laughs) Some scratches. There there are some loopholes in there. But yes, she's, she's thrashing at restraints where she's locked in the bed. And she's just sort of raving madly about flying and I'm flying. I'm it's flying. really There's... creepy. Like, again, this is Feruza Balk's moment where like her when she's doing extreme, it really lands. And she's like, I'm flying. I'm flying. And it's like, oh, crap. <laughs> I, I have in my notes right before this, I said, bless Feruza for going to 11 for this entire yes. movie. And I mean that sincerely. She's, sincerely. she's going full tilt. And for, for the most part, it works fantastically. She's amazing. And and, yeah, and that's our last shot of the film is her looking into the camera as we fade to black. You get some Heather Nova cover of I Need Contact, originally by Peter Gabriel, playing over the credits. I watched this with my wife. And like her takeaway of the whole film was basically that it's one giant analogy for the psychological warfare that girls do each other on the regular. I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. did she like it? She did. 
I really came away liking this for the most part. I'm not keen on the final act for the reasons I mentioned earlier, where I, I just feel that there are some failings. But even aside from that, it's a generally solid script. And even for its faults, the cast is so much fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And they're so good at just interacting with each other. It was like, yeah, this is just this is a very pleasant, very entertaining watch. I dug it. Agreed. I honestly felt it held up. I enjoyed it when I first watched it. I enjoyed the rewatch. I think it's a it's a real fun movie. I would suggest anybody who wants to check it out should do so. I neither liked it nor disliked it, which is I get, basically the original reaction I had to it. Is I just feel very neutral about this movie. I think it held up fine. Like it didn't feel particularly dated to me. I think there's aspects of it that I love, like Fergus Balk's performance, Rachel True's performance. I like the way things like their costumes mm-hmm. and their hair evolve over the picture. I like Nancy walking on water. So there's a lot of aspects to it, but overall as a film, I just kind of, I can watch it. It's fine. There's nothing I particularly dislike about it, but there's just nothing about it. I, I distinctly love. It doesn't pop for me the way some of the other nineties teen horror does. There's a lot to like about it. And like I said, there's nothing I overtly dislike about it. It just, for whatever reason, it always leaves me feeling a little bit kind of, eh. I enjoyed it. I liked how it, it's surprisingly close to Wicca. I enjoy a fair number of the actors involved. The only thing I really didn't like was them trying to have a sympathize or like feel sorry for the racist. Other than that, the rest of the film I thought was very enjoyable. Yeah, I just wanted to say it's another one of these movies that has a lot of cover songs in it. There's a few we didn't mention, and there's a few original songs in it that are all by kind of artists of the day. That I reached out to the music supervisor on the film, Ralph Saul, who's also a music producer, and he, he hadn't got back to us, but I didn't really expect him to. But it's interesting that a lot of the songs in the film he produced, as if it like he produced Dark Secret by Matthew Sweet, and he was the producer on Dangerous Type by Letters to Cleo, which is actually a Cars cover. And apparently the organist on the that cover is the Cars organist. And they also apparently all played it live for Andrew Fleming at one point. So he got his own little private concert. So I, I, I like the music in the movie, too. It's just it's another one of these 90 horror movies that's just loaded with covers. You want good music played by modern day artists. Yeah. Yeah. Except all the artists and the originals were like eight years old. So it's not <laughs> it's not like, I got nothing then. I got nothing. <laughs> how soon is now came out, I think, in 84, 86. So it would have been at best 10 years older than this film, you know, still fairly relatively current. But uh, it's just interesting to me that, that there's have so many covers in them. I have a sister podcast that I do on myself called The Mixes In. And I think in conjunction with these two episodes, I'm going to do one about top 10 90s horror movie covers. Oh, awesome. Perfect tie in. But anyway, yeah. Fun movie, just kind of neutral on it. To piggyback on something that Nick mentioned, as far as the finished film wanting me to have sympathy for the awful racist character, to quickly touch on some of the other script elements, we talked about pretty much all the big stuff, but I just want to mention a couple other quick things. One specifically with Laura, the the awful racist character, is in addition to all the stuff she does to Rochelle in the finished film, in the script, there's a running thing of her leaving Rochelle's clothes in the pool where Rochelle will go to change and then all of a sudden her clothes aren't there and the clothes are in the pool. And then later in the sequence we get with them in the locker room, Rochelle goes to find her clothes and they're gone. And she talks to the coach and the coach says, well, we found your clothes, but they're not in the pool. And it cuts to the men's restroom where the school janitor is using a rake to fish her clothes out from a urinal. 
But he holds them up to Rochelle and says, you want me to rinse them off first or you want them like this? What kind of question is that? <laughs> rinse the sons. Oh, oh my God. This really gross bit, but also the image of this dude fishing out uh, close with a rake. Uh, uh, uh. I was just like, what the fuck? So that's just one little random bit. We, we talked about some of the character subplots. One that I didn't mention was the script establishes Nancy used to be an alcoholic. And so the addiction that she references with her mother is something that's been kind of a, a running theme. and. Is something that's Fair. wanted her. Uh, we mentioned there's more manifestations of Sarah's magic, where she kind of has this subconscious effect on people she encounters. This is the salesman bit. There's a bit with a bus driver. There's a bit when she first gets the candles that I wish they had left in. When she gets the candles after the first trip to Lirio's, she goes home, she lights them all, she's playing with them, and then she falls asleep. And as she falls asleep and falls into her slow breathing, the candles in the room begin flickering in sync with her breathing. Ooh. So when she breathes out, they flare. And when oh, she breathes cool. in, they go I out. I like it. I was like, that was a nifty visual. I wish they had left that in. Although it's really disturbing the idea of her just falling asleep with all these candles lit. <laughs> <laughs> the sequence where they take the field trip to the woods is way more surreal and way more sexual because they go to the woods and they disrobe. Makes sense. And we get this montage sequence of the girls disrobing and kind of looking at each other. So it's one girl will be disrobing while another character is expositing over top of it. So that gets into the lead in with them, with them drinking the wine. There's a little bit more of Sarah's suicide attempt in this, in the script. She drinks the wine and she says to the girl, she says, as long as I remember, I could do it referring to her inherent use of magic with things like the visions. And I always felt sick. Like the world didn't need a freak like me. A mother would have been nice. Somebody to teach me it was actually a good thing. Then one day I realized I would rather be dead. But I didn't die. I made it here where I finally belong. It's been a long road, but I finally found these three. Now we make four. Which I mentioned that because I think Sarah's suicide attempt is one of the other things I would have liked mm. a little bit more context for in the film. And we don't get much more of it in the script, but there's that. No, in the film, it really just seems to imply that she lost her real mom during childbirth and she's never gotten over that. That, yeah, that, that, it, that's the extent of it. They really don't delve it's into it. It's very fleeting. Yeah. And Firuza calls it punk rock. Yeah, even I can do that. Bravo. <laughs> One of the more interesting changes is what's at the back of the shop. And Fleming touches on this a bit in some of the special feature materials. But in the original script, the second time they go to Lirio's, where the girls go to leave, Firuza Balk doubles back and hides behind a row of shelves. And Sarah says, what is she doing? And the other girls say, no, 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 just, just leave, just leave. And they go camp out nearby after the store is closed. Feruza Balk's character is in there, unlocks it, lets them in. So they basically break into the place. Now we're going to see what's at the back of this shop. They go to the back, they go through the curtains, and they emerge the next day on the lawn of the school. Oh, wow. Period. Wow. And their assumption is, oh, we must have done some really impressive shit. We just basically went through these curtains and manifested in front of school. That was fucking weird. Nope. That's not what happened at all. When Sarah returns, when Nancy and the girls are coming after her, Lirio opens the curtains and there is an old witch back there, an ancient witch who's just sitting back there and speaks. I believe she speaks in Spanish, if I remember correctly. And Lirio translates the whole time. And it's basically all the same exposition, but it's being given by this old witch who I know when we worked retail <laughs> and we had the back. We had the old witch who would just sit out by the loading bay at the bookstore. like a sailor. So every retail shop in their back room. That's why customers always expected us when we couldn't find, you know, books at the bookstore we worked at and said, well, maybe you have it in the back somewhere. They're like, well, maybe the witch in the back can manifest it for you. Go ask her. 
So it's pretty much the same scene, just constructed differently. And I'm not crazy about that scene in the finished film. And the script part's a little weird too, where it's just this you know old woman just hanging out in the back. But she specifically mentions that, yeah, I was back here when y'all tried to break in. So I sent you to school <laughs> and, and sent her to fuck off. And the bit where there's the pyrotechnics display that goes off, which scares Sarah in the finished film. In the script, the same thing basically happens, but the witch says something and Lirio translates and she says, yeah, the, the lady doesn't think that was an impressive display of magic by your friend, but I'll admit that I was kind of impressed. <laughs> and then the main thing is, it's just as, as most scripts do, it was a lot more ambitious in mm. terms of visuals. In the light as a feather sequence, they all levitated and they would all fly around the room and bounce around. So it started with Rochelle, but then they all would just kind of spring up okay. and just flew about. There's more scenes with them blowing out lights. Like when they get on the bus, Nancy just blows all the lights out on it. There's a sequence with them driving around town and guy pulls up in a car next to him, says something derogatory to him. They say something back and then he calls them bitches to which Nancy says, that's right. We're all bitches. And after she says that all their faces turn into dogs and then the guy panics and drives away. (laughs) So there's all these little bits and pieces where obviously they wanted to aim higher with the effects, which they cut back, but it, in the finished film, the fight scene in the script at the end is way shorter. In fact, we don't see what happens to Rochelle and Bonnie. They go upstairs and we just hear them scream okay. and we don't see what happens to them. So they really embellish the fight at the end. And then the last thing I'll touch on is the ending of the movie in the script is different. Like we mentioned, Nancy falls out of the window. She dies. Rochelle and Bonnie do visit Sarah, but Sarah's in the hospital at this point because she had her wrists slashed in the encounter. So she's recovering there. And same bit about, you know, can you still use magic? And she just says, get the hell out. And they run out. The ending sequence cuts to a library and it's a little girl and her mother visiting the library as Nancy is putting out chairs. And the little girl says, oh, that lady's she tells the best stories here. And all these kids come in for story time at the library. And Nancy waits until all the parents have left. And when all the parents have left, as she reads the story, she starts to manifest everything she's reading with magic where it's this woodland scene oh, with wow. beer and all this nice. stuff. And, and that's the actual ending of the film. So it has this same kind of up. Yeah. She can still use magic. It's just done in a, nice. in a different way. That's fun. So again, if you're a fan of the film, this script's not hard to find. So I would say, check it out. The big difference is the sequence of events is shifted around a lot in the final film. And so it's interesting to see how things play differently in the finished film and, and how it changes the pacing of everything. Very nice. Thank you, Eric. That's pretty cool. Thank you for bearing with my script nonsense, as always. I love it every time. I certainly had a great time talking about this film. And thank you for listening to this. The opinion of three straight white men (laughs) on the craft is I know what what people have been clamoring for. So this is a very important film for a lot of people. And it's, it's become a more important film. I think they're working on a remake of it, which I actually would kind of be. Yeah, there was some talk of that. I would be all for it because I think you could update this in some very pertinent ways. Yeah. And and I think the themes. If done right story would hold up just fine agreed yeah so we'll see what happens with that in the meantime we'll be back in a few weeks with episode 10 with a very different <laughs> set of films oh boy i'm so one we excited talked about today i'm so happy yeah so we'll see you in a few weeks for that in the meantime this is eric and thank you for listening this is nick leamy uh, i am human and i need to be loved uh this is jacob saying manamana
Manamana. Do 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 do.